We don't have anything to talk about. We don't. Nothing to talk about. I, I am on here uh, solely for self-promotion because I want to tell people that Exponent started again. <laughs> uh, what's the URL? Exponent.fm? Yeah, but I, 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 I you know, I, we, Is it? We, we, we took a hiatus and i like, why not just leave it in your podcast? But no, people like to delete it. So now I have to, I have to tell people. <laughs> oh my God. Where do we start? We got it. We can't screw around. I don't think. Can we? Uh, there's always there's always room for screwing around. It's been eight months because the last time you can tell on Skype because it says the last time you called someone on Skype and it was it was eight months ago. Wow, that is a long time. That's unusually long, especially I know I someone who I've t- lost my tends I, to have the same people over and over again. On the I've show. lost my title to to Moltz well, pretty significantly at this point. Well, Moltz had the back to backer. I mean, that's stuff to come back. It was, that. it was the multiest. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had to talk. I talked about that on the show, right? Uh, I, I don't remember. It was like, I was like, I haven't had Molton forever. I'll have Molton. And then the next week it was like an emergency, like need to do a show. Uh, and it, it like one, two, three, four people after another couldn't do it when I could do it. And then I had to go to, had to hit the Molts button, <laughs> even though he had just been on made for, made for a good show. Good old Molts. Um, who do you like in the NFL? I I don't know. I I don't. I, I probably the Chiefs. I guess just because I, I I think Andy Reid is a great coach, and I'd love to see him sort of sort of win. Um, but the yeah. it's hard to follow the NFL in general because the time zone uh, issue, uh, and then also like the general feelings of guilt. Um, but also the the Packers were bad this year, so that makes it a lot easier to to not pay attention. What the hell happened there? They, now they fired their coach halfway through the season, which is unusual in the NFL and particularly unusual for a well-run organization. And the Packers are, you know, their success shows it. I mean, they've wide, you know, widely considered a well-run organization. You know, like if the Jets fired a coach halfway through the year, who the hell would be surprised? Yeah, I think. Well, I think in part that was being a well-run organization. Like if you know he's not coming back, mm. like why leave him dangling out on a vine? I mean, it was, it was pretty apparent to everyone that, th- that th- it was time for that era to end. I think some of us probably felt that era should have ended several years ago. Uh, and if, if, if management has come that decision, then why not let him go? Uh, get a head start on the coaching search and, you know, don't leave him dangling on a vine. I actually, if anything, and give him a, you know, a, a, an opportunity to look for a new job as well. So I, I don't see any problem with the firing in the middle of the season. If you're going to move on, like move on. You know, especially if you know your season's over in the, in the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> Who the hell would have thought two years ago? I think it was two years ago. It seems like yesterday. Two years ago when on the, my, my beloved Dallas Cowboys were playing your Packers in a playoff game. And the <laughs> Cowboys lost through through coaching mismanagement. There's no other way to describe it. I mean, it, managing the clock is the most important game time thing that a coach can do, I think. Combination of coach and quarterback, but the coach. It's speaking on the coach. of Andy. Speaking of Andy Reid, right? Exactly. Um, a, a clearly, a, a coaching error. I, I'm not going to say that the Cowboys would have won, but I think it was extraordinarily likely that, that just by managing the clock properly, they would have won. Everybody expected. I mean, who the hell didn't expect Carrot to be fired immediately? I, I really thought that he, you know his ghost goose was cooked, and here we are two years later, and Jason Garrett's still coaching the Dallas Cowboys, and. Uh, Mike Murphy's out. I uh, know Mike Murphy is the president of the Packers. So I was, you know, oh. the Packers famously don't have an owner. Right. Uh, I, well, they do have an owner. I am one of the owners, uh, and the along with half the state of Wisconsin. 
but the so there's a team president that makes these decisions. So, which is good and bad. I mean, the good thing is obviously there's lots of uh, downsides that come with an owner. You know, there's the Packers will never move. Like right. I, if they if the team were ever not in Green Bay, it would have to be disbanded, and like the proceeds would go to like the local American Legion or something like that. Uh, so, so it's it's all that's all very cool. But kind of the problem is that you don't have an owner sort of banging on the door saying why aren't you know we have when the all time great quarterbacks why are we not winning more Super Bowls and I think that's been a bit to the Packers detriment over the last few years so it, Mark Murphy has been in that role so he's the one that's hiring the new coach they hired a guy named uh, Matt LaFleur who was previously the offensive coordinator of the Tennessee Titans which doesn't seem like much they had a, but they had a lot of injuries and I think they're they're there's a stat like their expected yardage on like pass plays was super high. They just didn't have very good players. Right. Uh, and then he was previously the offensive coordinator with Sean McVay in, in L.A. and Kyle Shanahan before that. So he's got a really, really great sort of background. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the hire. I really wanted them to do go with the sort of young guy. But, you know, everyone wants to do with the young guy thing after how successful McVay's been. Yeah. And I think of the sort of options there, I think I really like the pick personally. So I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about it. All right, that's enough football talk. We don't want to. Yeah, especially football has definitely moved into like a, a solid number three for me. Yeah. The uh, I, I am all in on basketball, as you know, and the Bucks are amazing and absolutely have a title shot this year. And then last year's Brewers run was awesome, which I don't think we ever talked about. But uh, great, great run. They added. Uh, they added. Um, the name's now escaping me. Uh, the 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 Dodgers catcher. Oh uh, yeah. Grandall. Yeah. Which is a, a great signing. So yeah, th- things are Milwaukee sports are are looking pretty solid. Yeah, Milwaukee Bucks. That's a good example of uh, power of coaching. Really, I mean, it's oh man, talent wise is fundamentally it, it, not that not a different team, but with a completely different strategy uh, and a tremendous, unbelievably different results. It's been such a tremendously delightful season in part, you know, first and foremost, because the team is good and it's fun to cheer for a good team. And particularly last year, it was so miserable because you you wanted to cheer for the team to win, but every win felt like that would make the coach stay longer with that. You clearly needed a change. That's a very miserable place to be as a sports fan. But the other great thing about this year then is they're super successful and also just tremendous heaps of, I told you so, uh, which is, which is, a you know, of definitely a, a, yeah. a probably evil pleasure, but an enjoyable one. Nonetheless. You know, and I know that the sports stuff often, you know, there's a lot of you out there who are rolling your eyes cause you're not into sports, but, um, but I do think that for the talk show's audience of, you know, let's face it, nerds, I, I do think that there's a fascinating trend in your and my lifetime in, in pro sports, which is the rise of analytics um, and, and sort of the, the downfall of old school, go with your gut sports man, you know, man, you know, picking players, you know, there used to be like, a, you know, it, people would actually pick baseball players based on how they look, you know, swing looks good. <laughs> Let's sign them. That's how they'd sign kids out of high school. And, and you know, everything is so driven by data and analytics in sports now, if you want to be successful, um, because it works, you know, and the Bucks are just proof of that, you know, and that were, there was, you introduced me to NBA Twitter and NBA Twitter is truly Twitter at its best. All the problems that Twitter has is one, you know, if you're a sports fanatic getting involved in the Twitter circle of your favorite sport or, or team, it is truly a great way to feed an obsession and Buck's Twitter was a hundred percent convinced that with a coaching change and a shift in strategy, the Bucks would be a terrific team. And it's exactly, exactly what happened. 
Uh, it's it's delightful. It's delightful. the um one thing. Here's a really interesting point, though, and this definitely, if you want to do a real tie into this discussion and the rise of nerds and whatnot, back to the stuff we talk about. I think that a mistake a lot of you know it's weird because if you're in the world where you're like you're just the blind leading the blind, it's like we've always done it this way. Obviously, having a data driven approach is a is much better, and so this and so there's been a big sort of return to having that sort of approach to having being, being very good at, at using data. But now the problem with sort of using data in your decision making is everyone generally speaking has access to the same data. Now there's folks that have, you know, different and more advanced analytics departments and it's a real sort of arms race to to get better at that. But there's sort of diminishing returns. And I think there's an analogy here to the business world where, you know, once people figured out you should focus on like operational efficiency and using data better and along those lines, like this is part of the whole revolution, uh, in part driven by competition with Japan and and you know supply chain efficiency and all those sorts of things that there was a huge amount of returns to it but there's not necessarily sustainable differentiation there and one thing that i think a lot of analytics people get wrong and i get i get you know lumped in with an, as an analytics person on 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 nba twitter even though like i don't i'm not i am certainly analytics adjacent to use as that glow term but i'm not you know i don't have my own like massive spreadsheets of players or anything on those lines right. but you know, if you look at tech, for example, the analytics movement is in many senses the speeds and feeds movement, which is the, you know, let's look at how fast something is. Let's look at the, the processor speed, the, the amount of memory, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very sort of number driven. And I think the great thing about sports, and I think more and more folks are maybe sort of becoming vaguely aware of this, is that there's still lots of pieces that go into building a winning team, particularly in basketball. I think more than any other sport that are very, very hard to measure, that are very, very hard to sort of put on a spreadsheet and there are advantages in understanding and and pursuing those sorts of things it, like to you know to, to use an apple strategy just to use a sort of obvious sort of analogy and that i think is particularly interesting and and so moving towards i don't think analytics is the end all be all by any means and it's very interesting and exciting as a sports fan to see that that part of the game sort of sort of become yeah. more and more important yeah I, 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 to name one example, I think the the Dodgers have a reputation of being incredibly analytics driven in terms of like who's in the lineup, and I think they lost the postseason uh, this year by doing it. You know that they had guys they had they had a bunch of outfielders, like way more than three outfielders uh, who were ready to play, and they would they would you know pick who was playing based on who was pitching and based on analytics models and stuff rather than just do what was smart and say like, hey, how about the guy who had three hits last night? Let's let him play again. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's I mean that that in baseball, that's particularly um, a, a huge sort of debate, and it, you know, I'm mixed on that because the Brewers certainly took that approach to the extreme. But then again, we you know we basically had no pitching staff, and we made it to the NLCS. Right. So, so it, it it you know, but yeah, we didn't make it all the way. It, it, but it's great though. I mean, this is why sports is is sports is so fun. I, I think you know, just to I know there's lots of people that don't care about sports, but it's fun because there's so many angles into conversations about. About it, and there's all and there and all the conversations reach a resolution, right? Like we can yeah. debate left and right. Like Bucks fans like to complain that the the Bucks aren't getting any attention, even though they're statistically speaking they're by far the best team in the league. Uh, like it's not even close. And as far as like net rating and offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, all those sorts of like numbers things. But you know what? 
it doesn't matter if they get respect because at the end of the day, there's going to be a playoffs and there's going to be a, a, a Eastern Conference Finals championship. There's going to be an NBA championship, and we're going to know right. if they were good or not. And that that's very sort of satisfying in a way that well, lots of areas are not. Yeah, that's so true. You know that we know who we know who won the Super Bowl last year. You know, there's you can argue about yep. who should have, but we know who did. You know. Yep. Yep. Uh, all right, we got a big agenda. We really can't screw around too much. Um, I don't know. Did you see my note? I don't know what order you want to talk about these things on. We could go most timely would be probably talking about Apple's uh, um, quarterly earnings uh, warning that sort of shook shook the yeah, market. I think, uh, I, I think that makes sense because I, I do want to talk about the App Store stuff, but I think that that's actually an interesting thing to talk about as sort of part two as like what – because it's very yeah. much in the context of what Apple does now sort of going forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because yeah, I mean, the, the app store the, stuff, the app store stuff is more evergreen and I feel like it's less, t- I feel like the timely stuff always works better first. Yep. So let's talk about it. Boy, people had a, let's, boy, the market had a, a fit. <laughs> well, I mean, just justifiably. So I think, because I think the thing to appreciate yeah. is there's two things. There's multiple things that are going on here. I mean, Apple was, you know, flying. I was only last summer that they passed a trillion dollars and they, I think they got up to like 1.2 trillion or, or something like that. And there were two big red flags on the last earnings call. The The first thing is that their, their projection, their forecast was already pretty low. I, I mean, it was lower than the consensus. So that was sort of red flag number one. And then red flag number two was they said, oh, we're not going to report unit sales anymore, which it's like, well, if you, you know, that sounds like if you don't report unit sales, if unit sales were going up, would you say that? Well, maybe not. Um, I, I think also the the reaction was maybe a little bit out of whack. People were like, oh, iPhone growth is saturated, blah, blah. iPhone unit sales have been flat for like two or three years now. So like the, the, yeah. the, if you actually understood what was going on, it wasn't that iPhones stopped growing. The kind of obvious conclusion was that the iPhone sales were going to start to decline. And so the, that was the, there was already lots of sort of bad news in the air and the stock was already sort of plummeting. I mean, the, most of the stock's loss has happened even before this, but then this has two parts, which is part one is the revenue is actually way worse than we said. And two, we didn't know <laughs> like the fact that, they, you're way better off giving a bad forecast that is accurate than than having to sort of restate your revenue. Like that's way worse than that's that's like the worst possible thing you can do as far as your reporting goes. Yeah, but then a couple other companies had to too. Um, Samsung, um, I think LG, a few others, like a week later, issued similar warnings based on similar, uh, you know, similar explanations. You know, slow slow economy in China. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, and I mean, it's it's a little it, it, it's it's interesting to say. I mean, I think I if I were to rewrite my article that I wrote this past week, uh, even after a few days, because some of these this news came out, and also things like car sales are down in China. Um, there's yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, there's definitely a lot of news out of China that the economy is slowing. We, we knew that even the government reported figures were down and those are all generally thought to be fake anyway. And so if, if yeah. they're down a little bit, it's probably way worse. And also just, you know, on the ground, I've heard a lot of you know, scuttlebutt that, you know, the trade war is definitely hurting China much yeah. more at this point than it is the U S it's, 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 it's hitting pretty hard. And so there's definitely the, there's no denying that the the economy is a big factor. That said, uh, Apple is also down much more 
it, it, you know, the reports that we have about smartphone share, like they're they're down much more than the market. So there, like there is, it's right. not just in line with everyone else. Like they're they're worse, in, I think, in in some respects. But at the same time, it's definitely a China thing. I mean, it was amazing when that news came out, and you had so many people coming out with this is Apple's problem. And if you back up, actually, you know, I, I started Shatekri in 2013, which was very fortuitous for me because that was the iPhone five cycle, and that was when there was a ton of panic. Apple's for the first time, Apple wasn't growing like plus 50%. They only right. grew like 15%. And, you know, yeah. the stock was way down and people were like Samsung's ascendant. And it was a great opportunity for me to say, no, this is ridiculous. Actually, Samsung is the one that is more yeah. sort of yeah. in, in a tough spot. And, and, but you notice all those same people that wrote all those articles in 2013 were back this year writing all the same articles in 2019 and barely except, except of Samsung. Yeah, well, the articles I saw where instead of Samsung's going to eat their lunch, it was the uh, cheap Chinese phones are going to eat Apple's lunch, you know, and not just in China where it is different. Well, not just it's again, it's 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 kind of frustrating because but I can understand why. You know, we I think we've talked about that. I, I think Apple's management does not listen enough to sort of criticism, in part because so much of the criticism of Apple is just kind of unhinged. And you right. know, even in this case, the problem for Apple in China is less cheap Chinese phones. It's things like the Huawei Mate, which by the way costs eight hundred dollars, or 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 the large one costs like a thousand dollars. Like there, the issue is not people buying cheap phones instead of buying iPhones. It's people buying other very expensive phones. Yeah. And well, one of the things I didn't really think about with the trade war, but it's very obvious in hindsight um, with the U S is the basically, I don't know how else to describe it. The patriotism issue where it, you know, you know, the Trump administration is poking a stick at China and uh, people in China are naturally it's, – it's driving a bit more of a, hey, let's buy Chinese phones, you know. Let's, you know and, and Apple is obviously unique in that uh, – very almost unique in that regard because what other American company sells large amounts of consumer products in China? Maybe luxury brands, but a lot of the luxury brands are not U.S. companies, right? Are people buying Fords over there? I doubt it. Yeah, I it, I it, it's up, hard. But... It, this is a super hard question to answer, like how much that mattered. But I also think it's it, – I agree with you. It's silly to th- not think that it didn't matter. And you know, I've been sort of – in the Daily Update, not, not in weekly articles, so the only subscribers who know this. But you know, I've been banging the drum that Apple is – like from the moment the trade war began, that Apple – this is bad for Apple. This is bad for Apple. This is bad for Apple. And it's because yeah. they're exposed on both sides. They're exposed on the production right. side and they're exposed on the consumption side. And the and given how large the market is, relatively speaking, for Apple, and this is the other thing with Samsung, right? Samsung's kind of not in the Chinese market anymore. Like they're they're number seven or eight or something like that. Like their their share is so small now. Like if you want to talk it's, about it, being it, obliterated by Chinese brands, I mean Samsung was obliterated by Chinese brands. It, the the fact that Apple uh, still has twelve percent share is right. a testament to the fact that they are still differentiated. I don't have the link handy, but. Uh, I just remember reading a couple of days ago, reading uh, about Samsung's um, projected warning for this quarter, the, the upcoming quarter they're about to report. It, uh, I actually have those numbers in my head that at one point, Samsung had 18% market share in China. Um, 
and and last time that was measured, it was zero point nine percent, like under one yeah, percent. So that that is that's staggering. In, in yeah, a, it's like know, Samsung's like profit warning was right. Their profit warning was mostly about their component sales, right? Which right. matters as far as the smartphone market being down. But it was it wasn't it was a related warning to Apple, but it was like a different type of warning. In that it's not that their smartphone sales are getting slaughtered; it's that they're if less smartphones are being sold in general, they're going to make a lot less money. Yeah, I, and I think that to hit a point that you mentioned a minute or two ago, I. I it, I think that Apple's exposure in China is is obviously the single biggest threat facing the company. I I, I think it's I, I think I don't think there's any any doubt about it. You know I don't think uh, you know they could lose any you know Johnny Ive or Tim Cook or you know it, Phil Schiller could leave. You know it's it's not going to you know it, nothing is as big a risk as China. Like some kind of calamity calamitous escalation of this trade war because it like you said it apple's exposed on both sides they're they mostly i mean most importantly on the production side like apple can't make its phone it can't make the phones for sure anywhere else in the world like and so something that would make it more difficult to make to to produce their products in china could be devastating to apple in the short run yeah, I completely agree. And honestly, you know, if you want to get into criticism of Apple's executives, and you know, there does deserve to be criticism for the, a, a miss of this magnitude, even if the market changed dramatically. And I, I think they, you know, we can get into what I wrote a little bit. I think they've they've generally underestimated their risk in China uh, for reasons we can get into. But uh, just in general, I think Apple they're a little too cheery on these earnings calls. I think it's been a little bit of a problem for a while, frankly. Like they, they, the fact that China is a huge risk factor, I think they should be upfront about that. Like it, it, it so obviously is. And, you know, instead, Tim Cook has spent the last several years, which have included quite a few quarters with very bad results in China, saying, oh, we believe in the Chinese market. The Chinese market is super important to us, blah, blah, blah. And there hasn't been enough, in my estimation, sort of uh, honesty about the fact that, look, we're very optimistic about the Chinese market. It's a huge opportunity, but there's a lot of risks there. And we've, as you know, our results have been very up and down. And I feel like a little honesty about the China situation over not just this quarter. Quarter, but the last few years would have bought them would have been very beneficial this quarter and and, and would have come as much less a sort of sort of surprise i mean you remember back with the 6s cycle like the chinese market got clobbered like they they were not selling yeah. anything there and, and instead of sort of being straightforward about why that was they're just like oh it's a great market we have very confidence going back and you know they spent the whole cycle saying we have a lot of people that are upgraded yet we feel very confident and then they had to do, do a two billion dollar inventory write down it's like well maybe Maybe you should have been a little clearer about what was going on all along instead of suddenly changing your tune, which, you know, I was very critical of it at the time. And I couldn't help but think about it now. Like, I, I just feel like there's a little bit too much excessive optimism at times with Cook in particular on some of these earnings calls. And I think the fear is my fear is that it's not, you know, that, that the reason behind that isn't dishonesty. It is not raw-rawing China knowing that it's, that it's wrong. It's that he honestly doesn't understand their problems in China, you know, that, you know, that, that he really is wrong. Right. It, 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 that's more worrisome to me than if he's being overly optimistic on earnings calls with a, 
knowing in the back of his head that he's BSing a little, you know, like it, to me, it's more worrisome if he's actually wrong. And I think that's actually more likely because I think Tim Cook is fundamentally a very honest person, almost remarkably so for somebody who's the CEO of a large company. I mean, that's, and that's certainly not something anybody ever said is Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, I completely. Like Steve Jobs wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't a liar per se, but he was a bullshitter extraordinaire. And Tim Cook is not. It is. It, it's just. It, it, it's just the antithesis of his personality. I completely agree. That to me, and this is sort of my third. I put like there's three errors Apple made, and one, like I said, I think they've always been more vulnerable in China with particularly with S models, and and I think that they probably overestimated the XR model again. But the third error was exactly this. Like there's, I I would much rather have a liar than someone that's not fully in touch with reality. Uh, I think that that's exactly right. right. <laughs> or or this is, this is the case here in the U.S. We've got. We've got someone in charge who's both. <laughs> you got both, both a liar all of the above, <laughs> and, and, yeah, all of the above. But yeah, me too. Me too. I would rather have somebody at, at the wheel who at least, uh, you know, it, it, if if they're lost, but telling you they're not lost, I'd at least have them know that that at least themselves that they're lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> rather no, than honestly that, believe exact- they're on the right way. You know, this is exactly it. This is really the thing that concerns me the most about this entire episode. And again, just because it's a bit of a pattern. Like we – I remember I wrote about this in the 6S cycle. Every single earnings call, like the results were way – were not what anyone expected. And every earnings cycle, Tim Cook would cite – and I literally – I went through and I tracked all of them. And I quoted all of them in, in, in a daily update where every cycle, Tim Cook was like, we have a lot of upgrades coming along. We feel very confident. We have a lot of, we, only 30% of the base is upgraded. Only whatever – because every, every call, he'd be asked – do you think that this the six the large phone pulled forward people you know that made them upgrade faster than they would have otherwise and that's why the success is going to be hurt and every time it's like no 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 and then at the end of the year he's like you know what we think happened was all the upgrades got pulled forward and so that is why the success was down it's like well why did you know that's been clear to everyone for a while you've been denying it over and over again why didn't you just admit that was the case all along and I, I think that he actually thought that there was a new reality and that the six growth would continue going forward. And actually there wasn't necessarily a new reality. And, and so that just reflecting on that, and it makes me concerned that there's a tendency in Apple's management to always see sort of the sunny side of the egg as it were. And, and that's, it's good to be optimistic. It's good to pump up the troops, but it's really important to have a sort of clear eyed view about exactly what the state of your business is and if you don't that's a really good way to get yourself in trouble yeah now in my family uh we have a long-standing tradition where we we call them being right points and they're just like invisible coins that you pantomime giving to somebody if there was any kind of argument over you know it could be anything small or large but if somebody says this is the most this is the most unsurprising news ever but continue uh, Jonas is the, was uh, we invented him in jo- we didn't have him before Jonas it was something we invented with with Jonas but we call him being right points and the way you admit somebody was right and you were wrong is you award them a being right point um, and I'm awarding you a being right point for your your overall thesis on S model iPhones and the Chinese market um, which I. I why don't I let you paraphrase it or explain it for those who aren't familiar with it? Cause I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and I think it's, I, I, 
you know, can't prove that it's that what's happening this year, but it's certainly it, the, their, their bad years in China certainly line up with S years for the iPhone. Yeah. So it, it, it is a subtle point because it's not to say that the, the, I, so a podcast is actually a good way to explain it. My, my thesis is that Apple's differentiation in China is different and fundamentally weaker than it is elsewhere in the world. And that is due – I focus primarily on WeChat, but it's not just WeChat. It's sort of the broad array of services in China. And keeping in mind that Android in China is a very – different experience in Android here because here Android is it's Google Android whereas Android in China it's all yeah. homegrown Android it's it's based on the open source project it's not involved with Google at all it's heavily tuned to sort of the local market and the long and short of it is is that the sort of step down in the user experience if if that's if you believe there is a step down between iOS and Android is much fainter in China in part because the most important things to your life are going with you and again WeChat is not just chat it's not just messaging it's 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 payments like all all aspects of life. Like there's a always stories in China about how old people like go out and they can't buy anything because they're not used to buying with their phone and they feel very put out because no one will accept cash anymore. Like the degree to which, you know, the WeChat wallet and Alibaba wallet are dominant is, is hard to overstate. There's there's many apps. There's the fact you pay your bills using WeChat. You contact government agencies with WeChat. WeChat is LinkedIn. All your business contacts are are, are there. Like the, the degree in which it is uh, – interwoven in all aspects of life are hard to overstate. And and what that means is, one, you switch to Android. Obviously, it also has WeChat. Not just that. Things like WeChat and other Chinese services are arguably better because they're not locked down the way that Apple locks down iOS, where, you know, yes, there's the the affordances to share between apps along those lines, but they're very, you know, you can't get the deep well of integration that you can if you're sort of architecting the, the OS from scratch for the local market in the way that those local phones are. And so the reason you buy an iPhone in China is not necessarily because your day-to-day experience of using the device is better. It, in some respects, is is arguably worse. You, you, but you buy it because China is a very sort of you you, you want to show off your you want to show off that you have the new iPhone. It's a very the way that wealth is sort of flaunted in China. It's pretty crazy if you haven't been there. Like it, it's it's very jarring, especially you know I grew up in the Midwest and the idea of you know, showing off that your your fancy handbag or or being uh, very visible about your your wealth is so foreign to me. Like that, I mean, so strange to me. And it's just so yeah. it's very very different. And so you have an iPhone, and iPhone has always been the top of the line. Like it's very clearly the best thing, the best model. The fact that it's expensive is a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, this was something people missed when the five C were out. The five C is like, oh, China, you know, one month salary in China. People who are people who are earning that much in China are not buying iPhones, right? There's there right. you can't look at a billion person market and and look at averages. You have to look at the different segments in the market. And there's a very large segment that absolutely has the income to to buy an iPhone and would. And the the flip side of that though is that if an iPhone isn't new then what's sort of the allure? If I go out and I buy a 10s, yes, there may there are some degree of of, of iPhone fans and people that generally prefer iOS that want the newest model. But I think that that segment is much smaller than people that that 
care very about the visibility of the phone that they're carrying. And so if you're someone that buys every year, well, better off to buy, like I said, the new Huawei Mate or the, the Mate 10. Like that, because that's clearly the new phone. It's the new hot hotness. And you can show off that you have it. And, and if you're not, if you want to stick with iOS, well, just stick with the iPhone 10. Like you, it, you, no one knows it's not the iPhone 10s. It's, you know, it, you might as well have the newest phone. And this, Again, I'm not saying this is a a, the factor, but what it results in is a a market where Apple's moat, in my estimation, is far shallower than it is almost anywhere else in the world. And what that means is when other things come along. So I think they would be weak regardless because I I predicted that the S models are going to always be weak in China. But you add on economic troubles. You add on a slowing economy. You add on the nationalistic sentiment because of the trade war. You add on, you know, the Huawei CFO being arrested and people maybe wanting to react against that. And Apple doesn't really have anything propping it up the way it might in a different market. And so I wouldn't say I appreciate the right point. I don't think that is the only factor, but I think it's a factor that is a factor and it's a factor that that uh, interacts with all the other factors to make those other factors even worse, if that makes sense. Well, and I, and I think it might be a factor that Apple's senior management either it is it is in denial about or or isn't doesn't grasp as fully as they should perhaps. You know, and I I, 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 I do tend to, to think that's the case, and that ties into sort of the excessive optimism case. Like the, the there's, I mean, the, I I wrote this in in you know a, a year and a half ago in the middle of sort of the S cycle or the seven cycle and really looking at the China numbers. Cause what was so striking was Apple was flat, but if you, and I did this in that, in that article, the, the, you know, Apple's China problem. If you took out China, the entire business was up like 10% or 10, 15%. Like the iPhone was doing great and the iPhone was doing great everywhere except for China. Once you put in China, then the overall numbers were flat. But but once you took out China, it, it, it was up. And there was clearly the China market was behaving differently and it was behaving differently, again, in a sort of predictable way. And so the prediction that I made at the time was that actually I said Apple has a China problem, but the implication of that China problem is that the next iPhone is going to return Apple to growth in China because it's going to be a new form factor. And that's exactly what happened. The iPhone 10 was a great success in China. Apple started growing in China again. And then you had you know, Apple's management earning call saying, oh, yeah, everything's great. See, he told you China's great. But but there was a part two to that prediction, which was the next S model, they're going to be in big trouble. And that's, again, exactly what happened. Now, I can't, again, it's all tied into the economic factors. I'm not denying those factors at all. But I, I think that it is a factor. And I agree with you that I don't think it's one that Apple's management has 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 taken completely seriously. Yeah. And, you know, Predicting these things is hard. I've spoken to people at Apple. Um, and I remember I, we had a conversation when the 5C came out. And one of the things about that made the 5C very different than any previous phone until the 10R really is is the variety of colors. You know, that there were five colors to choose from. And one of my questions was, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, what do you do? Just make them all like in the same quantities and, and, and adjust after you see which ones are popular. I mean, like, you know, how, how do you gauge something like that? And they're like, you know, you know, they didn't, as usual, they didn't explain exactly what number I was trying to get them to say, Oh, we made a lot of the blue one. Right. But they of course revealed nothing of the sort, but did say that they're always surprised every year. And and with the iPhone in particular, because it is the most popular and therefore 
it reaches the most people there that, that they're surprised every year with, um, differences that they never anticipated. Like, uh, you know, there's two colors of the iPhone four S and they open up a new carrier in country X doesn't even matter what country it is. And the, in that country, everybody buys the white one and they had no idea. They had no idea that black wouldn't be popular there, but you know, and, and they said, you know, we adjust on the fly, you know, that's, that's, what we do, but there, so it's really, you know, even Apple, you know, they don't think that they can foresee everything, but boy, their, their, their estimates for years have been close. Well, so, I mean, so, no, well, one of the that's ex- interesting point though, I, I, cause this is something that I tracked for a while is Apple's estimates used to be eerie, eerily accurate, right? Even if you like, even when they were sort of sandbagging, they were sandbagging very predictably and yes, very it, predictably. It, it, but, right. but here's, what's interesting. They were way off on the iPhone six, right on the downside. Like they right. missed, they missed yeah. the upside. Then they were way off on the success where they, way, they overpredicted. Yeah. They were a little better on the seven and the 10, but actually they were under on the 10 too. And I think it, what's interesting is they, so basically since the iPhone six, their estimates have been significantly less accurate. And, and, uh, and I think that's, Actually, not surprising because there's another thing that's going on here, which is for the first you know ten years of the iPhone or eight nine years of the iPhone, Apple was still rolling out availability. Right, they were adding countries, yeah. they were adding carriers, and when Apple would add a carrier, particularly once they were very powerful after sort of the first four or five years, they would add carriers, and they would the carriers had to agree to guaranteed sales. So like they they had mm. to say we will absolutely sell this many iPhones in the you know in the next year or something along those lines, right. and you know if we yeah. don't make it, we're going to pay for them anyway. And I think yeah. what might have been going on here was Apple's estimates were so accurate because a lot of their growth was driven by the expansion <laughs> of these deals, which had numbers written into them. So they kind of knew exactly yeah. how much was going on. And whereas what was, you know, the other thing with the iPhone six that made it so huge was that was the first iPhone to watch with China mobile on board because China mobile came on during the five, the five S cycle. And, and that was the first one to watch China mobile. And since then they haven't really, that was the last kind of the, 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 the great white whale for Apple, as far as care, your availability since then they've added them here and there but that aspect of iphone yeah. growth is kind of over and now the prediction is actually real predictions like how many people are going to buy them as opposed to how many carriers are going to force to buy them contractually and i think it's not a surprise that ever since then their predictions their forecasts have been uh significantly less accurate than they were before then i i linked to it this week um matt richmond uh had a blog post years ago. It was while it was still going on. But the way he, I, I think this was obvious if you looked at the charts, you know, you can look at the, see the slope of iSales, iPhone sales growth in the early years, and you could see how, what an r- unbelievable slope it was. Um, but when you word it the way he did, it's truly extraordinary that, that the iPhone 3G sold more than the original iPhone. The 3GS sold more than the 3G and the original iPhone combined. The iPhone 4 sold more than the previous three, or I guess it's, we're going by calendar years, like, but that iPhone four year, they sold more iPhones than the previous three years combined. And in the iPhone four S they sold more than the previous four years combined. Right. Like every year wasn't just bigger than the previous year. It was bigger than all previous years combined. It, that, that, that type of thing, that type of growth, it, 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 I, it's hard to imagine how that could happen in any other market than phones, because the way that that can happen is the way that you roll out to additional markets around the world, new carriers, um, it's 
truly remarkable, you know, and even within the US, it's not even just countries, you know, like other countries, I think I've always made it a little bit easier. There was less lock in to carriers, but, you know, like it, it opening going from AT&T exclusive to adding Verizon in 2011 was like adding another United States. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you just can't, you can't keep that up. I mean, and I know that there are two versions of the quote law of large numbers. Uh, and the people who only know about the, I forget what the first one is. The one is more mathematically rigorous, but the, uh, the sort of business E one is, is sort of, it's basically explaining why Ponzi schemes can't work. Right. Cause you run out of people, right. You, you know, yep. you can't, can't keep a Ponzi scheme going because eventually you run out of they only it only works by bringing new people into the scheme and eventually you run out of new people to bring in. Um, I'm not saying that the iPhone is a Ponzi scheme. It's it it the opposite. It was a le totally legitimate product, but the growth was driven by bringing in new markets and new markets had new people who'd never been able to buy a new iPhone before, and eventually you run out of new markets. Yep, and there's kind of like there's three ways to grow a business, right? Like you can serve a market, you can grow, which is you know there's an empty pie pan and you want to fill the pie pan. You can grow the market, which is you get a bigger pie, or you can still share from other people sort of in that market, which means you know you you take a bigger slice. And you know Apple for what you're talking about, they were all in the sort of filling the market stage to start where people that already had phones, now they're getting smartphones and then they grew the market, which is a lot of people that never had phones now had a smartphone. But, but now that all those are sort of tapped out and to the extent that you can grow the market, it's definitely in markets that where the iPhone is way too expensive. And, and you know, like one, I think uh, under discussed market is India where Apple is just a total right. mess. I mean, they, they they've yeah. actually completely flatlined in sales there too. Um, and and then and so they're basically stuck with stealing share, which, you know, again, which I think is not the worst place to be. It's still the case that, again, outside of China, that more people go from Android to iOS than the other direction. So they're 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 in strong shape in the long run. But it's a uh, you know, you know, it's a much harder and slower path to growth than the other ones. I think one of the great ironies of Apple's situation in China. And I think it's permanent. And I think, I think it's exactly what, what, you know, you've been describing what your being right point was awarded for is that it goes back to what you said half an hour ago, though, that Apple has long been misunderstood by financial pundits and tech pundits for basically the same reason, which is that I think most uh, financial and tech pundits want to treat Apple as just another company that makes X, Y, and Z. They're just another laptop maker. They're just another uh, phone handset maker and that they're competing on an equal basis. And that the, you know, and, and the advice to the company over the years has been so, uh, fundamentally wrong based on that misunderstanding. And I, you know, and I think it leads to people who do understand Apple rolling their eyes, including Apple management, you know, but I think the irony here is that, you know, I think the truth is around the world, Apple's strength is the it's it's this fundamental integration between hardware and software and the overall experience that it can provide and that you can't separate it. You can't just review a MacBook next to a ThinkPad without reviewing macOS versus Windows or whatever else you can run on a ThinkPad. Um, I think fundamentally in China, Apple is a lot more like the Apple that that's been wrongly assumed by the pundits over the years, they really are just another handset maker or, or a lot closer to being just another handset maker, just another company that sells laptops, uh, 
and that they're buying it. People are buying it for the superficial reasons that these pundits have said that everybody who buys Apple products has been buying Apple products for over the years. Yeah, I think that I think that's right in broad strokes. I mean, it's not it's not totally the case that they're they're completely commoditized. I mean, there is still you know if you are used to using an iPhone, you're used to using an iPhone, and you know it's worth keeping in mind that Apple's installed base in China you know still grew, which you know suggests that it's more people who have the iPhone 10 aren't necessarily upgrading, for example, whereas I think they might have if it was a a new form factor. So it's not like they're completely commoditized, but they are to a much greater extent, I think, than anywhere else. If that makes sense. Hmm. Um, right. None of these are extremes. I mean, to some, some extent, Apple is commoditized in the United States and to some extent they are not in China, but it certainly is a bigger factor. Yeah. And I think you could actually go by market. I think they're probably the least commoditized in the United States in part because iMessage is the biggest in the United States. And that's a huge sort of differentiator, you know, Europe, for example, and this is where it's important to, to, to discuss the fact that WeChat is more than chat and that the importance of Chinese services being different are much broader than, than, than I think people appreciate. Like in Europe, for example, iMessage, is much less of a lock-in, but the general sort of uh, the way you use an Android phone, the way you use an, an iPhone are different in sort of predictable ways. You, like th- there's there's less – it's not like you, you're advantaged by using an Android phone in Europe relative to an iPhone like you are in China given the fact that it's so heavily customized to the local market. Like that dynamic really only exists in China. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let me take a break here and thank the first sponsor. It's our good friends at Eero. Now, Eero makes Wi-Fi, and they make it work in a way um, that can really, really help in a bigger home or an apartment where one base station can't reach everything. They create what's called a mesh network, and you plug in multiple devices. But it all they talk to each other to form one Wi-Fi network. So there's not like you have to pick, like, oh, upstairs or downstairs from the Wi-Fi menu. Uh, it just creates one network. They have a great app for iOS that lets you manage the whole thing. It's not like some kind of weird janky thing where you go to a web browser and type in 192.168 or whatever, and then you've got like a weird interface to set up your router. Now, it's all in the app. The app is terrific. And they have a new Eero Plus service that is designed to provide single reliable security that defends all of your home's devices against a growing number of threats, such as malware, spyware, phishing attacks, unsuitable content, you know, it gives you Eero Plus gives you a way to uh, block certain types of sites if you're a parent, uh, and it all works right from the base station level. It's really, really easy to set up, easy to do, and it gives you total network protection. Really does, and advanced security. Uh, the content blocking can work too. It can uh, even help you block ads and stuff like that right at the router level, so you don't have to worry about installing it on content blocker type things on every single device that you have. Uh, all of this is really great. Uh, you can even get VPN protection with encrypt.me. Uh, it's really great. Uh, the single router model, it just doesn't work. It really doesn't. I think I think it's gotten worse uh, with just the proliferation of Wi-Fi networks. It just makes it harder to set it up. I've been using Eero for years. It, and when we, we moved a couple years ago, there's just no way our new house, we, there's absolutely no way. I don't think anybody makes a single router that would, that would go because it's a townhouse. It's got four floors. I don't see how we could possibly get good Wi-Fi all the way from the basement to the top floor. Uh, with Eero, we do. It's really easy. Uh, and it's so easy to set up. Oh, it, it's, it, it's plug them in. You just plug them into the wall 
and that's it. And then they talk to each other. They see each other. Uh, you manage it all from one app. And when you want to do something like, let's say you get their default, uh, their default package, it's a base unit. That's the thing you plug into like your cable modem and two of their beacons, their beacons are the little smaller ones. They're like little wall, uh, just like little, uh, uh, wall lights. And they even have a little light if you want to, and you can turn that light on and off in the app, uh, or have it come on at certain times of day. Uh, uh, let's say you get that, you get the base unit, two beacons, and it's not quite enough. Maybe you want one more, but just buy one more and you just plug it in and, uh, couldn't be easier to add it. It's not, you have to start over or anything like that. Really, really terrific. I've been using them for years. Uh, and, and it's really it, the Wi-Fi in my house is so much better than it was before. Uh, so here's where you go to find out more. Go to Eero.com. Check out with the code, the talk show. And if you buy a base unit and two beacons and one year of Eero plus, you'll save a hundred bucks. That's a tremendous savings. A hundred dollars just for getting their uh, base uh, kit with a base station, two beacons, and one year of Euro Plus. Hundred bucks off at uh, Euro.com. And remember that code, the talk show. Uh, before we get off of uh, China, I wanted to just talk briefly about this situation with the Huawei uh, CFO who was arrested, uh, detained in Canada. And she's still detained there. Uh, I think she's out on bail or something. Uh, but the U S is trying to extradite her to the United States. Uh, it, I, I don't want to get into the too much in the details of it, but it, I mean, what they're accusing her of is more or less laundering money to, uh, like Iran and I forget where else, but like, you know, Iran obviously has international sanctions against it. And the, the, Charges from the United States are pretty serious. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the uh, the limitation is Huawei is not supposed to be selling uh, this this advanced stuff to Iran, and the reason why the U.S. has you know leverage over that is because it involves a lot of U.S. components. So you know those components are not supposed to be sold on into Iran because of the sanctions. And the accusation is that she uh, they set up basically a shell company to do that, and then she told the banks that no we're not associated with that shell company any longer or something along those lines and then they still were so the i think the accusation is is wire fraud where basically lying to the banks and forcing the banks to to uh to break sanctions uh you know unwittingly and so that that's the obviously there could be more charges but that's sort of the the, the none of it and uh so yeah so just, sorry that that was the the sort of 30 second overview of of the case yeah. uh but it's, you know, and it's un, unseemly. I mean, even if the charges are accurate, it is, it's politically difficult because Huawei is, is like tied at like everything in China tied to the state to some degree. Yeah. It, well, not only that, but she's the daughter of the founder. Right. Um, and so my thought on that was, boy, I sure wouldn't want to be the next senior executive from Apple to go to China. Mm-hmm. Because and I, I I don't think that that's likely that they would trump up charges against somebody from Apple or some other American major American corporation and detain them similarly. But also, if they did it, I wouldn't be shocked. Right? It's not out of character for a, a regime like China's. Yeah, it's it's a it's very complicated because I would say that without 
without speaking about this case specifically, uh, I would say the likelihood that Huawei is engaged in sanction-avoiding behavior in a way that is uh, – problematic is uh pretty close to 100 <laughs> uh the, the and, I, and i think what makes this particularly in challenging on all sides is i think everyone's kind of known it's 100 percent for a long time and no one's done anything about it and uh and obviously you know this isn't the first time this has happened either in the last few years the you know zte got the basically uh, U.S. companies were forbidden to export to ZTE, the, this, the number two yeah. uh, Chinese uh, telecom manufacturer, and, and you know, there's basically a death sentence. Like Chinese U.S. technology is still at the core of. It's not just phones. It's the uh, Hawaii and ZTE are all in the sort of the base stations, like the, the the things that sit on the cell phone towers, and actually you know are, are do all that. And there's lots of. You know, ZTE and Huawei, the connection to the Chinese military is is strongly suspected publicly. There is lots of sort of redacted, classified uh, questions about this where I think the understanding is there's – the U.S. has a lot of evidence that that's the case. And that's why, for example, Huawei base stations and whatnot are not allowed in the U.S. You have to buy right. from from Nokia or from Ericsson. And, and that's – actually spreading. I think Japan recently moved against Huawei. I, I think there's a discussion, at least in the UK, about that happening. And so it's a but, – but then you tie in the sort of the fact, well, you weren't sort of enforcing this or you were letting them get away with it for a long time. And then there's also the trade discussion going on and it's a senior executive and it's it's a – it's a sort of situation where you can choose almost any frame to look at it and decide that what the U.S. is doing is right or wrong, and you could be be correct. Like in the in a broad global scope, is it a good thing? In the context of bilateral relations, is it a good thing? In, as far as the rule of law, is it a good thing? And you have a different answer in perhaps every case, but the the fact that it's a <laughs> you know, the, the, once you get to the level of nation states, like it's it's not really like a contractual engagement that's going to be educated right. in a court of law, right? Like you're dealing with nation state right. politics, and they're the ones that make the laws with guns behind them, and which means right. that the the calculus is very very different as to what is going on and whether it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's less of a judicial issue than an executive issue, really. Right, and it, it's it, it's politics. It is in it's international relations at the absolute highest level, and and the reality of I think you're you're about Apple. I mean, the reality is that Apple is when you're the size of Apple and you're synonymous with the U.S. as Apple is, and when you're exposed to multiple countries the way Apple is, yeah, the risk is extremely high. I think for now, the what I've heard from people on the sort of on the ground in general is it's a, it's a lot more dodgy right now to be a Canadian, um, uh, in mm. part because Canada's the one that arrested her, and uh, also Canada kind of like can't like China may be bad at the U.S., but the U.S. has a lot of leverage and and power, you know, over China. Whereas, you know, and so I think they're kind of taking it out on Canadians. Like, there's been a few Canadian executives arrested or Canadian nationals for very dubious reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a mess. It, it is absolutely a mess. But it's a mess. It's like if they're actually. You know, if they are quite clearly violating the law, then well, maybe it isn't. A, you know, it, it, like I said, there's no sort of right answer here. Yeah. Um. Here's a here's another one. Here's a a a, a new topic. I thought this was an interesting uh, 
Stephen Sanofsky, former Microsoft executive, now sort of a pundit at large, um, had a couple of threads in, in recent weeks on Apple, uh, but he closed one with a post PPPS. Uh, and I thought this tweet was pretty interesting. Just the, just this tweet in and of itself. Let me read it. The idea that Apple is on some countdown clock to a quote, next big thing is completely the opposite of what to worry about. That is the mistake analysts are making. Just as with Adobe, nothing is bigger than Photoshop or Microsoft with Office. Yet. But so what? Focus on execution. Uh, I do. There is sort of an obsession, especially with Apple, with what's the next big thing. And, you know, so many, it's, it's so obvious. There might, there will be a next thing eventually. You know, the watch is certainly a new thing. Um, but nothing's ever going to be the iPhone again. I mean, it's almost, it's almost impossible. It's, it may not be possible for any company to come up with something as great of a consumer product as profitable as the iPhone again, let alone the odds that it would be the same company. And I don't think it's, I, I, I you know, and, and I've seen it. There, there's a lot of Tim Cook haters out there. There always have been. I mean, there were Steve Jobs haters too, but there's a certain contingent of people who really, really don't like Tim Cook. And boy, did I hear from them in the last week or two. <laughs> I, can, I mean, I people who really, really are, uh, uh, you know, and it's ultimately is his decision, but that, you know, the basic idea, and they love to trot out that Steve Jobs quote about Steve Ballmer and, you know, that, that they turned it over. Who do you turn it over to? You know, you turn it over to the numbers guy and then what do you get? You run the company by the numbers. And, you know, Tim Cook was obviously, you know, he wasn't a product person, never claimed to be, um, you know, but they blame They blame Tim Cook for the rising price of Apple products and, and, um, it's, it, you know, it, 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 you know, it's undeniable that the prices have gone up a lot recently. Um, but, um, th this idea that Tim Cook is, is, is obviously a failure because if, you know, somebody, if the right person had gotten the job after jobs had died, you know, Apple would have come out with, you know, the next big thing or two by now, because, and I think that's completely wrong. I really do. And I don't, and I think that an obsession with that would be a disaster for Apple's leadership and would lead them to, um, you know, change that, you know, thousand no's for every yes mentality, which I think is, you know, maybe the numbers are exaggerated, but I think it's mostly true. I completely agree. I, I think the, it's not just a matter of, you can look at this, I think, from a, a very sort of analytical lens that and come to no other conclusion than the fact that the iPhone will never be matched. And and I wrote it I wrote this article uh, back in 2016 it's called Everything as a Service. And one of the points is that the the most valuable sort of uh manifestation of a particular technology is at the very end of its sort of like viability. And and what I mean is like the the best possible sort of like carriage was like the last carriage that was made before cars came along. Yeah. And like the most valuable car was one that came along will be the one, you know, the most valuable gas car or the, the best performing yeah. gas car is going to be the last one before sort of electric takes over. Like that's just sort of the way, you know, if you think about it, that's quite obviously the case. And I think it's from Horace. I think it's from Horace did you, but one of the, my favorite examples of that was that when jet aircraft carriers came out, the propeller planes at the time were way better, way more comfortable. They, they flew faster. They were, they were way, you know, as a, it, it, but they were doomed. 
for for many reasons, like the jets overtook them. But it was it took years and after the introduction of the jet engine for them to overtake the propeller planes in the market. Yeah, I, I, that that's exactly right. And and so the the if you think so, that's just the overall sort of concept. You think about the right. iPhone specifically, and what makes the iPhone so insanely valuable is that first it's a physical object and a physical you think about how the, the challenge with sort of digital goods is how do you monetize digital goods because a digital good is by definition sort of there's no scarcity it can be duplicated endlessly and which means that the sort of inherent value of a digital item is zero and, and you see this in things like the music industry for example right the the longer they tried to hold on to selling songs the more they were doomed now music companies they don't sell songs anymore they sell convenience right, right? the the point right. of apple music and spotify is you can conveniently get access to any song that you want to and the, the music is kind of a byproduct of when the actual selling proposition is convenience and that's that's a, a business model that makes sense with digital goods the the thing with a phone though is a, it's a physical good which means there is scarcity which means you can like there is inherent economic value to a physical good in a way that there isn't with a digital good but it is a physical good that is differentiated by software, by that that sort of ineffable component that is endlessly duplicable, endlessly sort of iteratable. You can constantly be improving it, making it better. You can build any sort of differentiation. And so the iPhone has all the benefits of being a hardware product as far as monetization goes and has all the benefits of software as far as differentiation goes. It's really the absolute perfect marriage of these two models such that you can drive high differentiation through software and you can reap and capture that differentiation by charging money for a physical device. And a physical device that, by the way, wears out, breaks, you know, needs replacements, so on and so forth. Yeah. It is the absolute perfect possible sort of business that you could ever be in because it has all the benefits of digital and all the benefits of being a hardware good. And I don't think we'll ever be in that state again. Like the, the future of physical uh, goods differentiated by software is they're going to rent them, right? You think about self-driving cars, it makes much, it just makes intuitive sense in the long run that, you know, uh, Uber and self-driving cars are a natural marriage, right? Or an Uber type service where you call it up on your phone and it drives around and picks you up and you go. The like the 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 reasons why we would buy a car are were because we didn't have the sort of technology to make an always available car that that made that made sense. And and you think going forward this is going to make sense for so many things that because we have a, a device with us all the time that we can access the internet and access anything we want to like this uh, rental model of exp very high cost physical goods is going to, I think be more and more predominant, which means like, what's like really like what's next. I mean, yes, I guess maybe AR glasses or something, but if you think about it, like there's always the phone is it's so it's perfect in so many ways. It's big enough that you can get information, do things on it. It's small enough you can carry it with you. It is it is really the perfect product in a way that it's very hard to imagine. You can imagine lots of other good businesses, but the perfection of the business model combined with the form factor and the perfection of the product itself, it, it, it like it seems. It, if you think about it, it's obvious there will never be anything to match it. Yeah, and the way that it's it's actually eaten a bunch of uh, sub markets, cameras for one thing, right? Consumer cameras are still exist, but that it, they've been decimated by phones. Uh, I mean, it's when you go on vacation, go anywhere touristy these days, when you actually pay attention and look for people using 
cameras as cameras, not phones as cameras. It, it's hard. It is. It's hard to go to Disney World and find people using a real camera. Or, or if you do, it's very, very obvious because it's actually like an SLR size camera with you know a big black lens. You know, it's it it's somebody who's buying a, a truly expert or at least a, a consumer. You know, what's the word? Prosumer uh, level camera. Um, but for like the point and shoots, it's gone, eaten by cell phones, uh, voice recorders, uh, right. I, I don't know that that was a huge market selling little personal tape recorders. Um, but who, who buys them anymore? Everybody just uses the voice recorder on their phone. Uh, uh, you know, like last year when there were like five or six of us who got invited to Apple to talk about the Mac pro, um, and we were allowed to record it, um, we weren't, we weren't supposed to publish the recording, but we could record it for our own notes. All of us, every single person used uh, their iPhone as their recorder. It's, it's you know, that's just not something uh, people buy anymore. There's so many things like that. Yeah. It, it, and they're all in the phone. Yep. And the, and the phone, like they're alarm I, clocks. Who, who buys an alarm clock anymore? The, uh, the well, I wish it up with the Google Home Hub, by the way. Uh, with, <laughs> you know, just as that reminded me, because, um, we can mention, get back to a little bit, but the uh, I wrote this uh, about this idea of there being because I think something people really misunderstood about the iPhone, you know, way back when. I mean, this is back when I started, and uh, you know, people were talking about the iPhone disruption and and et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Uh, the iPhone is a unique product in that it's not really a it's not a disruptive product. It's a product that has come in on top that is more expensive, that does more than what is in the market. That's the opposite of what a sort of disruptive product is supposed to be. And the uh, yes, it's disruptive to the laptops in the long run. I get that. But relative to other cell phones, it was what I termed being obsolete or, or in that it, it – it, made so many things that were cheaper obsolete. It made your camera obsolete. It made a calculator obsolete. It made all sorts of things that you would otherwise buy individually, and it just sort of subsumed them into one device, or maybe obviate is maybe a better term. And the PC did that back in the day. Like there's always pictures of like this desk with all these tools on it. And then, then there's only a PC and the phone did the exact same thing. And it's a sort of, it, it's a different dynamic where it sort of comes in over the top, but it's, it's, you know, it's very hard. It is continued to do that over time. Yeah. There's somebody has a similar picture. I remember, see, I remember it went super viral on Twitter where they had literally had the cover, either the cover of a Radio Shack catalog or, or just, I think it might've been an advertisement, you know, but like a, you know, mid 1980s ad, uh, Radio Shack ad. And it had like 20 different products and every single one of them is on your cell phone. Now it was like, they had video cameras, they had still cameras, calculators, <laughs> All these things and every single thing. It was like uncanny. It was almost like you can't believe that this wasn't ginned up and it's fake, but it was actually like a real Radio Shack ad. And everything that they were advertising was all on your cell phone now. Yep. Basically, basically the, the form factor rules. Anything that, that – that was sort of portable and, and carryable is going to end, was going to end up on the phone, and that's that's what's happened, and that's why it's such a great product. But it, but it follows then, like, what's going to actually replace that? Because you have to replace not just a phone; you have to replace all that functionality with something else, right? Yeah, sure, maybe you can go out for a run with just your Apple Watch and your AirPods, but then you still need a camera sometimes. Then you still right. need a, right. a screen to watch video. Like, th- that's why I think the phone is. And this is why you know I, I thought my article this week was was actually relatively optimistic. I think this is a bit of an overreaction because yes, 
Apple people might be holding on their phones longer. Yes, China is an issue, but the fact of the matter is phones aren't going anywhere. And within the phone market, everywhere except for China, Apple is not going anywhere either. And frankly, in China, their install base still grew. So it's not like they were they were necessarily like bleeding customers either. I mean, the, the company, I think, I think there's been a bit of overreaction. Like I think they're, yes, the days of growth are over, but that's, I think, been clear for a while for people that were paying attention. Uh, but I, that doesn't mean, it doesn't follow from that, that the decline is, is, is has now arrived. Yeah. And the other thing that plays into your point from a few minutes ago about the, the difference between a physical good and a digital good is there's a resale market for uh, physical goods, right? And you mentioned music. I still think back, there was a time in college, you know, I went to college in the mid nineties. There was a time in college when I got to thinking about my net worth, just as an abstract idea. And often as a, like a typical college student, I might have under a hundred dollars in my bank account. I mean, maybe if I was lucky, I mean, like I always say, I, I knew the one that there was a, a particular ATM that a, I could get without a fee because it was like on my, my ATM. That's network, right. You, you, yeah, so you told would, that story. Yeah. I remember now. I would. And they, it gave out, it was a machine that gave out tens and it, most of the machines only gave out twenties. And so, so like when I was under $20, if I had somewhere between 10 and $20, I could still get a $10 bill out of that. And then, you know, figure out how to, how to get my parents to give me some more money. I figured out, you know, uh, the only things I had of any value, I had a Macintosh, which I couldn't part with, um, or I wouldn't want to part with, and CDs. I had, like, I, I didn't have a massive CD collection. And, you know, and I had a, 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 a little hi-fi system to play CDs that was maybe worth, I don't know, 150 bucks. But I had, I, I would, let me think about this. If I had... 200 C. Yeah, I had thousands of dollars worth of CDs. I don't know if I had 200 CDs. You know, that sounds about right. Not a big collection, but you know, it, it took up a couple of rows on a, one of those CD holders that was four or five feet high. Um, and you could sell them. You could. There was a very vibrant market in used CDs. You know, uh, college campus typical. You know, some there was one on Penn's campus right next to Drexel's, and you could go there and get a fair amount of your money for a CD. You know, you could get, you know, a CD that maybe you bought for $16, you could sell it for, I don't know, like eight. And then you could buy the used CDs there for like 10 or 11 or something like that. Like the idea that I had my, a significant portion of my liquid wealth in, in music makes no sense today. Like how in the world would a college student sell their music? Like you can't. It doesn't make any. It would. It, it's. It, it's almost laughable how different yep. the world has gotten in those twenty five years. Half, half um, our listeners don't even know what a CD is. <laughs> and it's fascinating to me that the one way you still can buy and sell music is uh, with uh, vinyl, right? That there's because vinyl is sufficiently differentiated from digital music that it sounds different, and works different, and looks different, has a different tactile sense to it has left it as the, I mean, who the hell would have predicted that in the nineties that vinyl would, would be the last, <laughs> the last physical medium for music, but it is. And there still are music stores that sell, but they all sell vinyl to my knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't know for those of you who are young, it's just great. It's crazy how common record stores were in the eighties and nineties. Like um, the, my typical, my hometown shopping mall was, you know, not even that particularly large. I think it had three record stores. 
It was, they were record stores that were they were more record stores than drug stores. Oh no, I totally remember. And then what was the what was the like Columbia House or whatever where you would get like the six CDs for for extra oh, yeah, price? Yeah. But you need to remember to cancel every month because yeah. they would also they send you some <laughs> crappy CD that you didn't want for like twenty five dollars. Uh, yeah, it was it was a whole racket. Yeah, it, they had Columbia House had the thing where their their advertisement would literally have like a, a outline of a penny, and it was they wanted you to scotch tape a penny. Fill out your name and your address, and here and name your name the six albums you want. Yep. Send them one penny, and they'll send you six albums. But then you're you were on the hook for like like the album of the month. Yep. Which you didn't even get to. No, you didn't even get to pick what they sent you. No, you you could decline it, but to decline yeah, it was but, like a big pain in the ass. So the, right, the way the right. business model worked is people would forget to decline it, and then they get just these terrible CDs in the mail that they paid like twenty two dollars for or something like that. Yeah. Um, it was very devious, you know, but anyway, in today's world that, you know, the iPhone absolutely plays into that and, and the way that Apple's, you know, how, how are, how is their user base for the iPhone growing when their sales are down year over year? And it's because people, you know, there's, there's this secondhand market for iPhones that is significant, whether it's actually selling them and buying a used one or getting a refurbished phone or, you know, like I think it's probably super, super common in families handing down older phones from parents to kids and, and keeping them in use for, you know, for years to come. Um, you know, so in terms of Apple's services narrative, which I definitely want to talk to you about significantly, you know, it, it, on the upside for Apple, you know, that the, the iPhone user base is still growing in a way that handset sales aren't. That's exactly right. And that, but you should do an ad, and then we can, then we can, then we can gripe about services. All right, I will do an ad. This is going to be a great ad. He sponsored the show before. Do you hear this? You can't hear it, Ben. But in, in the people out in the real world, when they listen to the show, are going to hear it. They're going to hear music right now, which is amazing because there's usually not music on this show. But music is a crucial part of almost every visual project. You know, like you make a movie if you're on YouTube doing that sort of thing. Your next film commercial. Or app, right? Because you can't release a new app now without a video. It needs music to tell a story. And pairing your work with a perfect piece of music is sort of like finding the project soulmate. It's an intimate connection. The, the, the right music, what makes it right, it's ineffable. Well, meet composer Alex Weinstein. Alex has over a decade of experience writing music for commercial and films. His clients include Amazon, Starbucks, Disney, TrueCar, Etsy, and others. He's a longtime collaborator with my personal friend, often guest on the show, Adam Lisagor and Sandwich Video. He's worked with them on a lot of products, projects. If you recall the, the occasionally used theme song for the talk show, Pickin' Boogers with John, that's an Alex Weinstein song. So what makes his music different? It's all handmade and organic, beautiful instrumentation, infectious rhythms, and a humanistic approach to composition, preferring live raw sounds that don't sound machine made. So there's two services, custom and library. Custom music, that's when you work with Alex to make a brand new song, soundtrack, something like that, creating a score that matches your vision. You can hire him, you can work with him, create your own original music. Also, there's the library. Alex has carefully curated a library of just a few hundred songs, and all are available for non-exclusive license. Finding a great track couldn't be easier. He's got different styles of music, Fun, strange, quirky, thoughtful, simple and intuitive search. You can preview tracks without irritating audio watermarks. 
and you can purchase a license right in the browser and download broadcast ready files right there it's great stuff you're listening to it now use promo code the talk show and you will get 30 percent off your first purchase from the license store visit alexweinstein.com a-l-e-x-w-e-i-n-s-t-e-i-n alexweinstein.com slash the talk show for more information seriously great great work i love alex weinstein and his work my thanks to alex for sponsoring the show uh What's next on our list? Well, I think the services one is is the obvious sort of segue because your point yeah. the the payoff for Apple is as long as Apple is only making money from selling devices, the fact that people are buying secondhand devices or using having on devices is a bad thing, right? Because they are using those devices instead of instead of buying something new, and and they're basically competing with themselves, and so the the great. The great lure of a quote-unquote services narrative is that actually those are – that's good news. People buying secondhand phones is a good thing for Apple. People using hand-me-down phones is a good thing for Apple. People holding on to their phones, yeah, it would be great if they bought a new one. But as long as they're still using an iPhone and not buying something else, then it, it's all to the benefit of Apple. And and I think that – and that, that's a, a very sort of legitimate argument to make. Yeah. Uh, before we move on to services, actually, the, that reminds me that I wanted to mention a theory of mine. And again, it's, it, it, I think if it's true, if there's any truth to it, I think it's, it's a, a tweak. It's not like this explains everything. It is one factor among many. But I, I wrote back in November that if there's any truth to this, a hey, iPhone XR is selling less than expected and maybe not doing as well as iPhone 8 did versus iPhone 10 a year ago. And I, I wrote that I suspected it might at least, you know, to a few percentage points be that people are resistant to the fundamental change in the use in the interaction model of the iPhone that the 10 introduced no home button, no touch ID, which is actually one in the same. Um, even the no headphone jack, I think play, which wasn't, didn't start with the iPhone 10, but I, I don't know. And, and, Boy, oh boy! After this Apple news came out, I heard from an awful lot of people who swear up and down that they're not—they're not getting rid of their iPhone 6s or their iPhone 7. I guess the 6s was very common, but until Apple brings back Touch ID and the Home button, and uh, you know, I really there are certain cases where Face ID is not as good. Uh, I've noticed more and more, like in the morning. I don't know what I look like when I wake up, but it must be awful because a lot of most of the time my phone doesn't. <laughs> doesn't recognize me well it, you have and to hold not, it away from your face that's the issue that i found because in the morning i have my glasses on and so i want to put it yeah. on my face but now i'm in the habit of hold it out like you know 10 yeah but i that. often i often when i go, still read on the phone when i go to bed and i have my glasses off my contacts out and i have to hold it close to my face and i don't seem to have nearly as much problem right before i go to bed without my glasses on holding the phone closer to my face i, I don't know but, I mean, and and somebody, you know, people often bring up like when you have the phone mounted on the dashboard of your car, it, it you can't unlock it with Face ID because you know it's not pointed right at you. And you know, if you're driving, you probably shouldn't be unlocking it. Period. But I know that you know there's cases you know where you might be completely stopped or somewhere it might actually you know even if you are actually being a responsible person driving a car using a phone. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I think that I think it's mostly psychological, though. I think it's largely the fact that they're, you know, 
most people aren't early adopter types and they don't like fundamental changes like this or, or they're resistant to them before they try them. And I think that moving all of the new phones for this year to the new model, I think has hurt them to some degree and maybe more than they predicted. And boy, I, I just heard so much in the last two weeks of people who are, you know, or last week, mostly, I guess it seems like two weeks ago, but it, it's been a long week, but so many people who think that that's part of the problem that it, Apple made a huge blunder by getting rid of touch ID and the home button. It's at least a, a reason to hold on to your phone longer, and and you combine it with the higher prices and all the things that are going on. And you know, this can be very interesting to see. Uh, there's, I'm glad you brought that up because I agree that that point is very interesting, and I think there might be something there. And there's two other points. Uh, one is. Uh, Apple's, you know, doesn't release unit sales anymore, but they do still release by geography. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see because if you read carefully what Cook wrote, all the problem is iPhone and most of the iPhone problem is China. But that means there is a bit of an iPhone problem somewhere other than China. So it's going to be very interesting to see where that is. Uh, I think the battery placement thing is also very interesting. Uh, You know, did that – like if the U.S. ends up being lower than other places – uh, that I think that would suggest there might be something there, and so that's gonna be. I'm looking forward to that in the earnings to see see what that says. Uh, yeah, that that was an interesting thing that Cook called out both in his open letter to the public and reiterated uh, in like TV, TV interviews with CNBC afterwards that that the iPhone re- discount re- battery replacement program, which turned what I think was usually like a seventy nine dollar battery replacement into a twenty nine dollar battery replacement, something like that. Um, you know. Played a factor in the slower sales, um, right? And, and people, uh, people are trying to make the argument that that they, they lost revenue on batteries. No, I, I think it's pretty clear that some people replaced their battery instead of getting a new phone. Like I think that's yeah. And, and it almost, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some aspect of people didn't even know they could replace their battery until it became oh, such I a think huge so. sort of news cycle. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that it clearly, when it became a news cycle, it broke through to more people that that is the explanation for the slowness that they were actually seeing, you know, that, it, and, and, you know, I, that's actually common sense to me that, that people would never, they wouldn't guess a normal person would not ever guess that the reason their, their three-year-old iPhone feels so much slower than it used to is because it needs a new battery. Like that just doesn't, it, it makes sense when you really understand how they work and what was going on and you know, that, that the CPU has to be throttled and it needs the full speed of the CPU with a healthy battery to run the user interface the way it's supposed to be run. Um, but it, the way most products that people know that are battery run work, they, it's, that's not how a, a battery that needs to be replaced works. Right. right? That's how it manifests like, itself. Right. It just feels broken. And I I think, you know, I, I think that people's experience with computers, which is largely based on using Windows PCs, there is, you know, what do they call it? Link rot, you know, that you keep using Windows for a couple of years and the computer gets slower just because that's how, you know, Windows works, you know, that it, I think that they, they sort of chalked it up to that's how old, you know, that's what happens. Your phone gets old and it gets slow and then you have to get a new one. Yep. And I think, 
you know, whatever number of people that that news broke through to that, hey, you could actually, you might be able to, you know, check this in iOS. And if it says, you know, you could get a battery replacement, bring it to Apple for, and for 29 bucks, uh, they'll replace it. You know, uh, I, I, I'm reminded of, remember when SSDs were first coming out? And if you put an SSD in your computer, it felt like a completely new computer. It's like, well, I don't, absolutely. I don't need a new computer at all. This is, uh, this is amazing. It's almost like a similar sort of dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had that exact thing back in the early days of the talk show. Geez, probably like ten years ago, I had a PowerBook. Uh, the idea of replacing hard drives in, a, in an Apple notebook. Well, not is just that, so but I, I did the um, with the with the MacBook. They had a one of the companies had a kit where you could take out the CD drive and you could put in a second hard drive. Yeah. So so I actually <sighs> would have dual hard drives in in. So I think I had the yeah. I had a spinning drive. Be, to be very large, and then I had a boot drive with the SSD because these were super expensive. So you would buy like yeah. a 64 gigabyte boot drive, install OS 10 on that, and then you would also have the large drive. And yeah, you did it all yourself. Like you would unscrew the back of your computer, you would literally take out the CD drive, put in this kit, reconnect it all up. It's it's amazing. It's it's, it's wild, dude. To think about yeah, doing that it. I it was like a three or four year old power book and I upgrade, I took, I think I replaced, I don't think I did that. I remember that though, that you could take out the CD drive and replace it. Uh, I think I just replaced the hard drive with an SSD and it was uncanny how it felt like a, like a brand new uh, four year, you know, four year, year over year improvement uh, power book. Although it probably cost half as much because SSDs were so expensive at yep, the time. Yep. But you were probably getting a better deal with your old computer with an SSD than buying a new computer yeah. with a spinning drive. Yeah, it made sense to me. It, it made sense to me, and it turned out better, even better than I expected. Yep. Uh -huh. So the the other the other point to bring up with this is I'm very uh, I'm obviously not looking forward to a recession, but it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to Apple's business the next time there is a recession in the West uh, or in the United States, because the last time there was a recession, the iPhone was such an such a nascent business that it was still selling to people at the very sort of high end of the adoption curve, so that you know they, they yeah. weren't really impacted by the the Great Recession uh, in in a way that you know now. When you're at market saturation, the the macroeconomic factors impact your business much more. And so yeah. as far as you know, I might still be wrong. I'm going to have to give you back my being right point in that if their sales in the U.S. end up being impacted dramatically to a similar degree that they appear to be being in China, then maybe it, it really was just sort of the macroeconomic factors as opposed to my, con my conjunction my, – uh, my thought, which is it's, it's a combination of them. Conjecture. Conjecture. Thank you. Yes. Um, all right. Let's talk about Apple's services narrative. Uh, it, it's about so I I have a bit of mea culpa. I, I have to give back a a a being right chip. Um, <laughs> it, I, no, I, I've written this in the I've written this in the Daily Update and in the uh, in I've already recorded this week for Exponent, so I'm kind of repeating myself. But when Apple first came out with the services narrative, the timing is very interesting because it was the first quarter of the 6s, which was really again that, that's the quarter where China plummeted, and they tried to say oh everything's great and everything's good, and then actually they ended up having to take like a two billion dollar inventory right down later that year. Everything was not good. Everything was not great. But I, I don't think it's necessarily an accident that that's when the services narrative came out. They, they did a supplementary document saying, oh, this is actually how much money we make. And that document was kind of funny because they took credit for all 
app sales, including the developer share. That was the point of it to say, well, yes, we only report this much, but the actual number to think about is this much, which was you know the developer share. Uh, and anyhow, but that was when the narrative started. And at the time, I wrote that. Oh wait, this is ridiculous. Apple's not a services company, and that was right. Like their 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 services business was uh, was a a result of their hardware business. Like they were still a hardware company that were developing hardware products, you know, software differentiated hardware products. And the services business was sort of like frosting on that cake. And, and I, so that's my opinion for a while of a couple years later, I had to come back and say, you know, I was a little unfair in their characterization. Apple is still not a services company in that they make decisions as their strategic decisions are made as a hardware company, but the from a financial perspective, it is fair to make this argument because the money is real, it's meaningful, it's growing. It's important to understand that Apple does monetize consumers over time. It is the case that people on secondhand iPhones are valuable to the company in a way that's not captured if you only think about a hardware thing. And so, and so, I had to sort of adjust there, and I think I need to adjust again in that. Not only is that the case that services revenue is a real thing for Apple that should be considered when analyzing them financially, but I think you could make the case that Apple's starting to make strategic decisions like a services company, which means they actually are starting to really be a services company. So th- there was a lot yeah. packed in there, but but I, you you gave me so much credit before I needed to uh, I needed to put my cards on the table and say I, I I wasn't completely right there. Or if anything, well, we can- our Apple's changed over time. Yeah, well, we can tie, we can tie that in and and mix the pot here and talk about Apple's TV strategy because it, I, I think there's no better case of that than the news out of CES this week that Apple is working with, uh, I would say the four major TV set makers: Samsung, LG, Sony, and Vizio, um, to get Apple stuff built into their TVs. Um, and particularly interesting is Samsung, who I think Sam, Samsung is getting iTunes movies and TV shows. And presumably, I, I, I could not believe that it wouldn't automatically include, but obviously couldn't be announced, Apple's upcoming s- subscription streaming service. Um, however, they're going to charge for that, you know. Um, so Samsung TVs are going to have that built in. So you just buy a new Samsung TV, turn it on. And, and as you know, quote unquote, input zero, what does the TV show you before you switch to like an HDMI thing and have like, you know, a box to put something on TV, you know, nowadays they're all computers and they show you some sort of interface. Well, iTunes is going to be part of that now, um, from Samsung of all companies. Uh, but they're also supporting airplay Two built in. So your Samsung TV will be able to be an airplay Two target, um, and then the other three, Sony, LG, and Vizio, are getting AirPlay 2 and HomeKit support. So, so Samsung is different in that they're the only ones with iTunes, at least so far. And the other ones uh, are different because they have HomeKit support in addition to AirPlay 2. And I, to, that, to me, is fascinating. And it certainly seems like the move of a services company, not a product company. Absolutely. And because I, you know, they may continue to sell the Apple TV, but this is like they're they are no longer using services to differentiate the Apple TV. Like you buy it because you want to buy another Apple product. You don't buy it because it has anything particularly unique to it. At least if you're Samsung, yeah. and, and the the fact that it's only Samsung, I, I don't know this for a fact. I've kind of heard scuttlebutt that 
Samsung processors uh, in their TVs are significantly more powerful than everyone else. So it might just be mm. a technical limitation where you know Apple couldn't get their software to work acceptably on the other TVs. Again, I I don't know that this is the case. This is just just sort of what I've heard. Um, and I, but I highly doubt it's like a you know I, I it I would I think if they're going to be on Samsung, they just as soon be everywhere. I don't think it's necessarily like yeah. something that's that's particularly unique in that case. But yeah, I mean, why buy an Apple TV? If you have one of these things, why buy an Apple TV? And yes, you can say, well, I like the experience better and et cetera, et cetera. But the, the Apple TV is very much having to compete on its own merits. And frankly, those merits are are not particularly strong, particularly especially when you consider the price. I mean, the, it's so yeah. much more expensive than than the, the alternatives. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and they didn't do the iPhone type thing, I guess, or did they, did they, can you still buy an older Apple TV a non 4k Apple TV? Maybe you can, but it, whatever, if, if you can, it's not as much cheaper as it should be. Like, it's not like, Oh, the expensive one is the Apple TV 4k and you can, but you can get the other one for 50 bucks. It's like, you still have to pay like $130 to get one. And it's ridiculous compared to all the other things you stick into hdmi i'm not saying it's unjustified i'm an, a big apple tv fan almost everything i personally watch on tv i watch through apple tv um and there are things i would like to see improved about it uh and i'm you know like <laughs> i've never heard anybody defend the remote <laughs> i have never it's like it, it doesn't is, even seem like it's there's awful a, like it, it, it's 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 not like it's oh they could do better it is awful like it, it, everything about it, it it's just bad it, the the number of times it, I, it boggles my mind they could ship this just for accidental input alone like yes. it, it's yeah. oh it's and you'd be in the middle of something yeah. or whatever and then someone like it's gets gets set down on the couch or whatever and someone's butt hits it and then suddenly like it stops the movie or fast forward it's oh it's unbelievable how bad it is yeah the accidental input is mm. Anyway, we can, we don't want to spend too much time on the remote, but no, but but yeah, the, the non four K is one hundred and fifty dollars. The the four yeah, K is one hundred and eighty. It's well, there you go. I mean, that's even more expensive than I thought. Whereas you know, a Fire TV is I don't know twenty bucks, thirty bucks. I don't know, and and Roku's is similarly cheap, and you know, and they're making trying to make money by, but they put ads up, and it's you know, it's a very different experience. And part of what I like about Apple TV is knowing that I'm nothing I do through my Apple TV, and and like iTunes is getting sold. I'm not seeing any extra ads. My image isn't being captured by the TV and used for marketing purposes. Um, but that's where the industry's gone, you know. Um, you know, and and Neelai Patel had an interesting interview with the CEO or C CTO of Vizio at uh, at CES this week, asking about it. Uh, you know, and they call it post purchase monetization. That that the TV business is so low margin and so cut rate, and you know, costs are going. They really are going remarkably down. You can get a bigger, better TV for less money every year. It's it's truly a remarkable market. Um. But you know, Vizio, you know, Vizio, he, got, he basically admitted, yeah, we, you know, part of our business model is based on the assumption that we can make money on TVs after we've sold them, and that's you know, and not by people subscribing to things. It's it's by reselling the information they they glean from from what's on the screen, and it's weird to see Apple getting involved with that in some ways. Yeah, I would I would strongly suspect that. Uh, the iTunes content will not be will not be trackable. I mean, I, I would be pretty shocked if Apple did anything along those lines. Uh, but I, I, yeah, we'll see. 
But on the other hand, I, I got the feeling, I don't even know how that works. Like I still have a, a, by this point, ancient, I guess, I guess it's like 12 years old. Jeez. Uh, plasma, uh, you know, totally non-smart TV. My TV is, is just the, a dumb terminal, you know? Um, you know, but I, I, you know, it's old enough and now small enough by today's standards that I'm definitely in the market for a new TV, but it, it really offends me deeply <laughs> that what do they call ACR, whatever they do when they, but it's yeah, automatic guy content said basically, recognition. yeah. And yeah, is the worst, by the way, like they are, they are as far as this stuff goes, they've been busted for, for all kinds of shady stuff. Well, and Neil, even had a tweet recently, like his parents had a Vizio TV and he looked like it there. I don't know if they're Euro or what, but you know, whatever the is to track which devices on the network, he had like a screenshot and it was like, <laughs> like their, their most active device in the house by, by a factor of like 20 was their new Vizio TV, which was contacting Vizio servers like thousands of times a day. Uh, and they, they'd never like signed up for anything with it. All they did was put the TV on their Wi-Fi, and the thing just started phoning home like a ridiculous amount of times. Yeah. Um, but I think if you plug an Apple TV into like that TV, it's going to do, you know, your Apple TV box is going to, you know, it, it's more or less what, what the TV sees, they see, you know, if it's on the screen, they can see it. Interesting. I, I don't know. I, you know I, 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 I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know either. But it, it, it is a little bit surprising. And, and you know, it, it's just TV is a totally different market. And, you know, poor Gene Munster, you know, was looking for an Apple branded television set for, for years and years and years. And, you know, it, it, he was obsessive, which was funny, but he wasn't fundamentally wrong, which is that that sort of seemed to be the Apple way to do something, right? that the Apple way to do it is to make the hardware, make it the best, integrate it with the software and sell it at a premium, you know, and that the way to, you know, so that the, the, the Apple, the seemingly natural way for Apple to enter the TV world would be to make an Apple branded TV set with everything built, you know, the Apple, the Apple TV computer part built in. Um, they've obviously never done that. Um, and even before these announcements at CES this this week, I think most of us had thought, you know, well, that ship has sailed and they're never going to do that. But now it certainly looks as least less likely than ever that they will. Yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting, the, especially in light of this tracking stuff. You would think that there would be um, there there would be more of an opportunity than you would think. But I mean, Apple can't even make a computer monitor, so I guess asking for a TV was 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 would definitely have been a bridge too far. <laughs> well, they never said they couldn't make a TV monitor or computer monitor. They Sorry, just, chose, they just chose stopped not making them. Um, and they, you know, uh, well, the other one that's interesting too is the um, the Apple Music be on Alexa. I mean, the, the yeah. I mean that. Yep. To me, that's a clear shift in strategy. I mean, the and frankly, to my mind, suggests that HomePod sales are way worse than they expected. Um, and that that you know th- that was a real differentiator for Spotify is that if you have a Spotify subscription, it will work on the smart speaker that you already have, and Apple Music didn't. And, and you know, strategy is about yeah. making trade offs, and they were at first trading off Apple Music to favor HomePod, and now it's the exact opposite. But you brought up a thing in a, a recent piece that's in the show notes. It was and it was mostly about Apple and antitrust, which is a whole segment of the show I want to get to. So don't don't go into the antitrust stuff yet. Um, um, but the third last third of it was basically sort of raising a flag about Apple's services that that 
that in some ways, one of the reasons that Apple has been so such a consistently great company is that their interests have always been aligned with their customers. Uh, and that Apple makes nice products and customers want to buy them and they do and Apple gets the money from them and they charge very healthy margins and the people get a product they're happy with and Apple gets the money and and the circle continues. Um, services is the, – the, the, the impetus of a – services driven company is very different and it leads to things like, uh, you know, ad tracking and privacy invasive stuff. And I'm not saying Apple's going to go down that route. I really, I, I hope not, but the motivation is suddenly there when it wasn't before. Yeah, right. It I was sort of like it, 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 it was a, easy for Tim cook to rail against privacy when Apple didn't have any, any reason financially to, 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 to not hold people's privacy. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, it's hard to say because uh, I think there's an aspect of it depends how you monetize the service, right? If you're ad driven, by definition, you're going to have you know you you, you like you 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 need to collect data like your business depends on it. Uh, and you know I I've long ago uh, noted that Apple talking about privacy, I I labeled it as strategy credit, which is the opposite of a strategy tax. A strategy tax is where you sort of hurt one business to prop up another business. It, Apple Music being a, a classic example, right? Apple Music not being on the Echo previously was a strategy tax that was paid you know, to support the HomePod. And, and inherent in any business is if you're – particularly if you have a, a hardware business and a service business, there's inherent tension there. And they're going to be sort of working at cross, at cross concerns. The, a strategy credit on the other hand is where because of your business model, you get something for free. Like as long as Apple was making all their money by selling devices, they could criticize Google for, for privacy. And it's not that their criticism was wrong and it's not that they weren't right – that they their their devices were better for privacy than Google's, but it didn't hurt them either, right? There was no, no there was no injury to their business. There was no trade off being made. And again, that's not that's not to say it doesn't matter or it's not important, but it's you know worth noting when you're looking at it strategically. Uh, I think it gets a little trickier when you get into so. And Apple's not going to be an ad business, so they have ads in the in the right. app store, but by and large, you know. They're not necessarily being uh, an ad business in part because they won't cross these lines, which which is fine, which is great. Uh, it, it, I I think there's definitely a place in the market for that. the The challenge is when you get to things like like iterative services, like you know, to what extent does having a large corpus of data matter in developing some of these different you know machine learning based things, for example? And you there, there's disputes about it. Do you need a lot? Do you only need some? You know. But, you know, and you can come down at different sides, but now it's getting a little bit closer to being a tax as opposed to being a credit where you might actually be hurting your business in order to maintain this sort of stance on things. And and that's a more – again, it's not saying one way is right or wrong, but it's a more challenging sort of managerial decision than it was a few years ago. Yeah, I, I think so. Um you know, one question I've had, and I still think it's unclear, is how the hell is Apple? I mean, Apple is undeniably working on on streaming original content, as they say, TV shows and and you know movies. Um, you know, these this is they've they've announced it. They had to. This is something they can't keep secret because they make these deals and they get published. You know, you know, um, 
So that's coming, but nobody knows yet how the hell they're going to charge for it or are they going to charge for it? And I know there was one, I forget who published it, but there was one piece at some point last year where somebody said that they, it, it would just be free, but it would be, you know, it'd just be like you, you, but you could only watch it on Apple devices. You know, that if you have an iPhone, an iPad, a Mac or Apple TV, you could watch Apple's original content. And if you didn't tough noogies, um, this deal at CES makes me think that's hard to believe. Yep. <laughs> Cause it's obviously going to be on the Samsung TVs now. Uh, I mean, and I guess they could make it so that you have to have an iPhone or something to get started, you know, like to, to get signed in, you know, and so that's only, you know, some way they could somehow more or less make it so that just because you have the Samsung TV, you can't watch Apple's original content without owning some other Apple product. But it seems unlikely to me. I, I've always thought that they, you know, uh, to me, the three main ways they could do it, they could just give it away free, uh, which I think is unlikely. Uh, they could just make it part of Apple music and either change the name or keep it called Apple music, even though you're getting TV shows on it. And that's sort of what they're doing now. Cause like the carpool karaoke thing, I think you only get if you have Apple music, uh, or they could just start a separate service and you'd have to, to get Apple music and Apple TV, the service, uh, you'd have to pay two, two subscriptions a month, or maybe, you know, obviously the natural thing to do would be if they're both $10 a month for 15, you can get both. It seems a lot more likely to me that they're going to do something like that at this point. I don't, I think this idea that they'd give it away free is not nutty, but it certainly doesn't, isn't, isn't the strategy. It's a strategy of a device company, not a, not a services company. That's exactly right. And I, I agree with you that the, the, it seems pretty clear that it's going to be a broadly available sort of content, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I wrote, I wrote an article a few years ago that they saying they should buy Netflix. And this is when Netflix is worth like yeah. uh, $40 billion or something. So it was a, comp- a much different proposition, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not sure like basically effectively competing with Netflix doesn't, doesn't seem like a particularly, uh, fruitful strategy. Um, but it, it's, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's going to be very interesting to watch. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm skeptical about the video stuff. I, I mean, with the caveat, I've been very skeptical all along. So you know, there's probably a degree of confirmation bias here. But especially now, to your point, that it's very hard to see how it connects to their core business. It's it, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what it looks like, what the business model is, how they roll it out. Because uh, it it kind of feels like, well, let's do this thing that everyone else is doing, and making some money at. Yeah, and you know. There's only so many, you know, they, I don't know what, I think the phrase would be subscription fatigue. You, there's only so many things a month you're going to get people to sign up for. Um, you know, and Netflix that, you know, to their, to their credit, you know, I think they have a pretty clear strategy on that, which is that if you're going to get one, it's going to be Netflix. I mean, I, I think if you looked at all the people who pay for some kind of original content subscription, uh, if, if you, took all the people who only pay for one, I'll bet the overwhelming majority is, is Netflix. Yeah. We'll see I, though. I, I mean, I think the my, one thing that I've always uh, believed very strongly is that the shift, I think what's happening with entertainment, with video, it's a, sh- 
like there's a reorganization of the value chain, but I don't think that uh, it's not going to get cheaper, right? Like I think that people right. were paying, you know, between 100 and $200 for their entertainment needs uh, 10 years ago, and they're going to be paying that equivalent amount 10 years from now, I mean, adjusted for inflation or whatever. And, and it's just going to, the money's going to be going to different different people. So I, 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 I hear the point about subscription fatigue, but if you maybe stop paying for cable or you you get a a skinny package and then you spend that money elsewhere, I just don't see a world where suddenly people were paying you know two hundred dollars a month for their entertainment previously, and now they're only paying fifty dollars a month. I, I think that's very unlikely. Hmm. Yeah, and you know another sign of this from a few years ago is Apple Music for Android. Um. You know, and it was easy to justify because it wasn't a free, it's not free. You know, everybody has to pay 10 bucks a month for Apple Music. And so getting, you know, whatever the small percentage of Android users who do subscribe to Apple Music, uh, you know, it's it's all icing on the cake because they are at least paying $10 a month for Apple Music. Yeah, I mean, I think they had to do that too. Uh, you know, especially when Apple Music started, they were doing like an exclusive strategy where there'd be stuff that's only on Apple Music. But I yeah. think that'd be a hard strategy. They've kind of abandoned that for now, but I think that'd be a hard strategy to do if you only had, you know, 15% of the market or, or in the US, you know, 45% of the market yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I was taken by surprise by this Apple stuff with the TV set makers. And now that it's settled in after a couple of days, I'm less surprised. Uh, I, I still don't have a coherent total explanation of it so i haven't written much about it um you know i think, I it think does remind- it's it's where growth is like i think they need growth yeah. and and the iphone is what it is it's not going anywhere again i think to bet on it you know on, on apple losing share or losing their, their their position in the market is mistaken but i think as far as revenue growth uh, it, it's it is probably mostly tapped out and so i think that's probably underlying most of this is Making more money from from services is by far the you know the, it's kind of like we need to make more money everywhere because the iPhone's not gonna yeah. not gonna happen because you know the the wearables division is doing great uh, but that's not gonna be the size of market of of an iPhone. No, well, and the thing that popped into my head only days later, but it, it should have popped in right away, is the comparison to uh, putting iTunes on Windows. Uh, now that was not about iTunes, the the music store. It was fundamentally about the iPod, which was a device. Um, you know, the, most of the money Apple made from that decision to put iTunes on Windows was made from selling iPods, not from selling music and TV shows. Um, I think it, it certainly was in you know at first, um, but it was about growth, even if it was at at, at the expense of the. the whatever let's keep it all in the Apple family advantage there was to keeping the iPod Mac exclusive, you know, and I think it was, there was sort of a similar, Whoa, Apple's going, doing it for windows, you know? And, you know, it was, you know, clearly the explanation was all, it was all about growth and it worked. It made it, uh, iPod sales skyrocketed because there were all sorts of people who had no interest in switching from windows to the Mac who definitely wanted an iPod. Yeah, it's probably one of the uh, – I think there was a lot of dispute within Apple with this. Isn't it right that Steve Jobs was opposed yeah. to it originally? Uh, I forget which book I forget which book that comes from, uh, unfortunately, so I wish I could give credit. But it might have been Stephen Levy's uh, book on the iPod. 
but there was this story somewhere, but that it was like Phil Schiller and I forget who else were on the side of, look, we should do this. We should put this on windows. Cause we, we could sell a ton of iPods and we can get new customers, you know? Yep. Um, and jobs was reluctant. No, th- and, that is, that is then, the, that is the, uh, that's the, the all time greatest. I think Apple strategic decision. People talk about like, yeah. like making a, making a phone that, that obsoleted the iPod. That's, that's easy business, right? It's a more expensive yeah. device. You're making more money, right? And that's not disrupting yourself. The real one was, was going to windows and it's, it's, it, What's so interesting, This so a lot of decisions are like this. In retrospect, it's so painfully obvious that was the right thing to do. But it really entailed sort of giving up on like the heart of the company, right? I mean, the, Apple right. was the Mac. Apple and the Mac were synonymous. That That's, that's what they right. were. And you had to basically say, we have the first time we have something that could actually – switch people from windows to the Mac because we have this device so we can actually grow the Mac and then say, Nope, you know what? Mac, you're gonna have to do it on your own because there's something bigger here that we need to reach towards something larger. And that was the decision that laid the groundwork for the iPhone because people forget yeah. the iPhone was a computer dependent device when it launched and, and you had, so one, it had to work with Windows to reach the market it did. But two, you, you already had people acclimated to Apple, used to using iTunes. They, like, they had all the pieces in place for the iPhone to happen. And the decision that mattered most of all for that was, was putting iTunes on Windows. Yeah, and I think the reason they deserve credit as a great decision is that it, it, it wasn't about a bad strategy versus a good strategy, which in hindsight is easy, you know, easy to say, well, yeah, they made the right decision. It was a good strategy versus a bad strategy. It was a strategy that was good for certain reasons on the one side that was diametrically opposed to the opposing strategy that was good for other reasons, right? It was good for the Mac that the iPod and iTunes were exclusive to the Mac. It was great for the Mac and being great for the Mac was good for Apple, but it was just better for Apple overall to, um, to put it on Windows. Yeah, I mean, Apple famously, you know, when they launched the when they launched the iPhone, they they changed the name of the company from Apple Computer to Apple Incorporated. You know, to sort of, which I think is, you know, honestly, when you think about the iPhone, it's still a personal computer. It's actually way more personal than any computer we've ever had. But you know, there was a, there was a degree of symbolism there. But the moment that change actually happened was when it went to Windows. That's when Apple sort of ceased being a a computer company and became yeah. something larger than that. And, uh, and the name change was a trailing indicator in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me take a break and thank our third and final sponsor. Uh, it's our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. Come on. You know Squarespace. Squarespace is where you go. It's, it's everything you need to do to have your own website. You can register a domain name. They host the site. You build the site right there in the web browser on Squarespace. You pick templates. Their templates are beautiful. They're all professionally designed. They all work great on screens. They're responsive designs that go all the way from phones to giant 27-inch displays. Uh, you pick the features that you want on your website. Uh, you know, Do you want a blog? They have a blog. What do you do? when you? How do you post to the blog? You do that on Squarespace. They've got their own CMS for it. You want to start a podcast? You can host a podcast right there on your Squarespace site. You have something to sell. You have like, you want to have like a catalog of items, sell t-shirts and stickers or whatever. You can do that in Squarespace. They not only let you set up the visual store, but they handle all the e-commerce for you 
securely, of course, uh, analytics, all of it built in. It's all, literally all, all in one platform for building, hosting your own website. Let me say this. I think you, if you're on the fence about it, you should have your own website. I think one of the ways the internet as a whole has gotten worse over the last decade is the way that, that we collectively have sort of outsourced our online identities to social networks and that we're just usernames on a social network. And yet it doesn't replace us. Having your own website doesn't replace a presence on a social network, but it's something that you can own and it's all yours. And I think that's just such an important part of branding. I, I think that there's so many people who are writing great stuff, but putting it on medium or something like that, where they don't own it. Uh, and they're not building any, any personal brand equity in it, whether it's a company or whether it's a person, I think having your own blog is such a great thing. Even if you only post occasionally because you own it and you can control it in perpetuity and brand it visually to your identity. Squarespace is a great, great way to do that. Great way to start your own blog, your own podcast, something like that. And look, it's a new year. If one of your New Year's resolutions is to do something like that, start a new website, to update an old old website, or start a podcast, anything like that, it's a great time to get started. All right, where do you go to find out more? Go to squarespace.com slash talk show, and you can start your free trial today. They got a free trial. Do everything for free. And then when you go to pay, just remember that code talk show, no the, just talk show, and you will save 10% off your first purchase, and you can prepay for a whole year in advance, save 10% on a whole year. Uh, my thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of the talk show. All right. We were talking about services, but I think that parlays into the last big ticket thing. At least I think it's the last big ticket thing on my list, uh, which is Apple, the app store and antitrust. Um, I, I, why don't you give the background on this? Cause I think you're way more informed than I am. Well, the context to write about it is the Supreme Court case that involves Apple, which is um, which is kind of a a sidebar to I think the bigger issue. Uh, and I, I you would, so the Supreme Court case is can consumers sue Apple for antitrust with regards to the App Store? And the the argument that Apple makes is there's a there's a doctrine antitrust U.S. antitrust law called the Illinois Brick Doctrine coming from a uh, Supreme Court decision called Illinois Brick, uh, Illinois Brick Company versus Illinois, nineteen seventy seven. That the only parties that can sue for antitrust violations are the ones that are directly injured. So in that particular case, uh, concrete brick makers were conspiring to raise prices and they would pass that price on to masonry contractors. Masonry contractors were hired by general contractors and general contractors were hired by the state of Illinois to build schools or whatever it might be. And so the, the Supreme Court ruled that Illinois could not sue, only the masonry contractors could sue because they are the ones that were directly injured. And, and part of this was sort of just administrative reason, like how do you decide where the damage is distributed? You know, you don't want to have double jeopardy where you, know, you get, you get uh, multiple things – it was actually a relatively closely decided case. I think there was a fair bit of controversy about it, but it's sort of been the law of the land for you know forty some years, and Congress has had plenty of opportunity to change the law, and they have declined to. So the the it's kind of like set. And so the question now is who is actually harmed by by the App Store? And neither party is asking the Supreme Court to repeal Illinois Brick. It's just a question of of who is harmed. 
So Apple's saying that developers are harmed. They enter a contract with us. We take money from them, and we're just a facilitator. We're providing a service for them to sell to consumers. The actual relationship is between developers and consumers, which means consumers can't sue us. They can only sue the developers. And the 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 and it's important to note that the lawsuit was brought by users. It's people who somebody who owns iPhones who they're suing Apple, saying that we want to be able to get apps from other stores. Well, no, no. They're just saying that we we shouldn't be have to pay that thirty percent premium. We're being overcharged, and uh, and so the 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 reason so they haven't even talked uh. about the antitrust issue yet. The only issue is can the lawsuit even go forward? So okay. so it's it's a it's still like a preliminary sort of matter. Do the people suing have standing is the legal term. Are are they the ones that can sue for this? And uh, they're saying no. We pay Apple. Uh, and so we are the ones that are harmed because we're paying Apple a 30% premium that makes things yeah. more expensive than they would be otherwise. Yeah. I, so I think this is fascinating and, and, and I like to, I hold it up and, and this is one of the reasons that I really enjoy your writing and, and love having you on the show is I often say, you know, that the only way to be right all the time is to be actually be correct most of the time and be, be looking for where you're wrong figure out why you were wrong and change your mind, you know, and that changing your mind, a lot of people don't change their mind on anything. You know, there's a lot of people, if you say, what was the last thing, a big thing that you, you changed your mind on, they might have a hard time coming up with it. Um, you've changed my mind on whether Apple has, has a antitrust problem with the app store. Uh, and we could talk about that in detail, but I think that, I don't know if irony is the right word, but I, I, I think the fact that it's coming to head with this lawsuit is kind of, ironic in a way because i think the lawsuit is totally wrongheaded like i think if apple tomorrow said okay no more 30 percent we'll just we'll we'll, we'll charge 2.5 percent because that's the credit card transaction fee um so if you buy uh, a one dollar app we'll take uh you know two cents that's not going to lower the cost of apps by 30 percent yeah that's exactly <laughs> right because right. you it's it, you're not the users aren't the user there might be some an argument for how you could say that users are harmed by the app store's exclusivity but it's not pricing and it's you know like it, 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 you have you you hang out on slack with me with a bunch of independent developers i mean indie developers especially mac developers you know uh, the idea that that the price of apps has been driven up by the iOS app store is ludicrous because they're all free and 99 cents. If you have to pay anything, right? Like when it, it, until recently, when, when apps were paid, they, you know, the price was quickly driven down to 99 cents, which is unsustainably low. Uh, It's, it's a different type of monopoly if it's a monopoly. Whereas the brick case is classic antitrust where the prices were going up. They, they conspired to raise the price of the, bricks at the at the manufacturer's level then like you said the masons had to pay more which then the general contractors had to pay for more and then the state of illinois had to pay more to to build the school because the bricks were artificial you know it was all about raising prices um you know it's protecting against high prices you and i've had this conversation on online and offline um you know it if anything u.s antitrust law is is almost fundamentally based now at least on the enti- the entire point of it is about re- protecting customers from higher prices and there definitely are not higher prices in the app store yeah the app store prices are ridiculously low 
Yeah, it, it, I I agree, and I think to me that's sort of the clinching factor where I think that Apple should will and should win this this case. Uh, there is definitely skepticism from the judges in the in the oral hearings, but it, it seems to my eye that it's pretty clear that um, that's that's the case. But at the same time, if you if you back up and think about it, you know, Apple's point that developers uh, have the relationship or developers sell to users and Apple is just sort of like a payment processor or facilitates it. it same, why doesn't that, why don't developers, why aren't they able to get then their users sort of account information? Why can't they right. give them refunds easily? Like why there's, there's actually very little about this relationship that, that set, suggests it's any sort of a direct relationship to, between developers and users. And Apple certainly sits in the middle in every sense, except for maybe the way the finances move. Like yet, like the, the, uh, uh, yes, Apple doesn't like stock apps in their store. Like they're not a wholesaler, but that's the nature of digital goods. Is there is no there is no stocking to be had, right? I mean, so it, it's a it's a challenging case because it'd be it, again if this were physical goods, it'd be very straightforward. Either Apple buys the goods from developers and sort of holds inventory and then sells them on, or they don't and and they facilitate a transaction where the developer delivers it straight to the end user. But given that's a digital good, the the there is no inventory to hold. So it's not really clear who's in the middle. And I, I, again, I agree that uh, with you about this, the way this will probably play out and probably should play out. But I think Apple is, uh, they are very happy to stick themselves in the middle of the developer and user relationship in every single factor that actually matters uh, but for this particular legal case, like, oh, no, we're just standing to the side facilitating yeah. a transaction, which d- that doesn't reflect the way that th- those relationships actually play out at all. Yeah, and it's it really is. It is it. It seems like sophistry to argue that their relationship is not with the customer. I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, I think people I, I don't even know. We've we I know from talking to developers that typical users are are shocked almost when they find out if they if they do want a refund for reason x y or z uh, and they contact the developer uh the developer literally has no mechanism to to give somebody a refund and people find this surprising because it seems like they should you know uh but they don't you know and what do you do it's frustrating when you're a developer who's trying to give good customer support to users and and you want to say hey if for whatever reason you're not happy i'd i'd i would give you a refund but they can't uh, they don't have much more relationship with the customer or any knowledge of who they are than like when, when you walk into a target, a brick and mortar store, and I buy a Sony TV and I give target the money and I walk out the door with the TV. Do I have a relationship with Sony or with target? It's clearly it was with target. I mean, Sony's going to get the money or already got the money from when stone, you know, target stocked the TV and paid the wholesale cost. Um, but my relationship isn't with Sony. It's it's that's what the app store relationship is more more like than anything. Yeah, and not only that, but like Apple is very like forces you into you have to offer your goods in a way that you don't necessarily know who the end user is. Like it, it, it's right. like there's a there's a curtain there that you can't sort of break through. And even if you want to have sort of an account system, that account system has to be after the purchase. Like you can't force right. someone to create an account and then do a purchase. You have to allow them to do the purchase and never create an account such that they're always anonymous to you. I mean, pseudonymous, I guess, is the right word because you can track who they are, So you know, right. for, but you can't know who they are. And in what right. respect, then, does the developer have a relationship with the end user? I mean, the, the, the reality is that the 
according to the very narrow sort of reading, I think, of Illinois Brick, Apple's probably in the right here. But I think it's more a testament that Illinois Brick is woefully uh, insufficient for dealing with digital goods because we're dealing with a sort of yeah. relationship that's like Illinois Brick like envisioned a very sort of linear value chain where money went from A to B to C to D to E. When the reality of a digital relationship, it's not just money. It's also the consumer relationship. It's data. It's all this sort of stuff where it's much more of a a, a 3D or quantum sort of connection that to, to try to distill it to to a series of boxes and arrows is is woefully in, insufficient. Um but that is all to say not that that is all to not say that Apple doesn't have a I had too many double negatives there, but Apple has an antitrust problem perhaps with the App Store. And and I guess, I think the term that applies is rent seeking. Yeah, well rent seeking is is a uh it's not actually an antitrust term per se. It's just the the idea that a company or entity is collecting money uh based not on the provision of a service but by because the, the parties have no choice. Like so if you if you I mean you think about it in terms of rent, like if you own a piece of property and someone wants to do something on that property, you can extract money not by doing the activity that is generating money, but because you own the property on which is happening, right? And that's legitimate in the case of like real estate because you need like you need the real estate. It, it, it's it's a little less legitimate, I think, particularly in terms of digital content. And you know, there's a discussion to be had about apps buying apps, and you know, to what extent does Apple provide the APIs and the platform and all those sorts of things? that they're justified in taking that. I think that argument gets drastically shakier when it comes to digital content. If you want to buy, to take the classic example, and this was the this was the last the last app where you could buy digital goods in the app store was the Kindle app in 2011. And Apple said, if you want to sell a book, if Amazon, if you want to sell a Kindle book, you have to pay us 30%. You have to use our purchasing system. You cannot, because it used to be when the App Store first launched, the Kindle app, you could go to a web view. Uh, again, you weren't using Amazon's payment system with like in-app purchase APIs. You would go, you would click on a button, you would go to a web view, and you could click a button to buy it. And this is how it works on Android, by the way. If you use right. Kindle on an Android phone, there's a tab on the bottom, which is store. That that page is not like an app page. It's not like uh, using APIs or whatever. It, it is actually a web page. I think it actually – I do think that, that they did shoot you over to Safari – I, I don't think it was a web view in the app. I, you know, and I think that was part of the. That might be the case back in 2011. Yeah, you mean? yeah. Were there even web yeah. views back in 2011? <laughs> I'm not yeah, even sure if there I think were. there wa- there always was a web view, but it was in it, but it was limited at the time. I don't. I, if I was a developer, I'd probably remember. But there was there was a time a few years later where Apple significantly improved the web view, you know, and made it sort of like a mini version of Safari that had access to the same cookies and, and et cetera. Got it. But instead they shot you over to Safari. And in some ways that might've been better just because if you were already logged into amazon.com on Safari, you were already logged in when they shot you over and they knew it. They, there was like a callback so that when you did buy the book, you could from Safari hit a button that would jump you back to the Kindle app to the book that was already downloading 
you know, because they sent a push notification to the Kindle app on your phone, you know, yeah. so it, it, six it, to one it, half does the other. The, 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 yeah, the, the, exactly. the long and short of it is, is that until 2011, you could buy Kindle books easily and in, use, a, in an obvious way, all on the phone with maybe at the most arguably one extra step compared to if the purchase had literally been in the app. That's right. And, and whereas now today uh, you can download the Kindle app and you there is no web view there is no link you can't even say that if you want to buy books go to kindle.com like you have to know magically that uh, i'm going to go open the browser go to amazon.com buy a book then switch back to the app and do it and for amazon that works because amazon everyone knows amazon everyone knows kindle for netflix it works everyone knows who they are if you're a small business a content business it doesn't work very well and and the problem i have is i've a i don't see in any respect the case in which an ebook is the smartphone market like i don't this, this this has nothing to do with the app the smartphone market it is a book it is a digital content the the phone is simply a device on which you view something and i find it uh extremely problematic and objectionable and and not just from like a moral reason but from like an innovation reason that apple is is forcing is going to take 30% because they can like that. It is, it is rent sinking. They are taking 30%, not through anything that they do, but simply because they can, uh, they made, they made the rules. There's only one app store. You have to follow this rule. If you want to be in the app store and because phones are like, we just talked about how incredible the phone is as a market. It is something everyone needs, right? They are leveraging the fact that they control one of the two platforms for the device that everyone needs to basically Take 30% on stuff they have nothing to do with. And I find it problematic morally, and I think it's problematic legally. Yeah. Uh, and so the news on that front is that Netflix, uh, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, uh, Netflix has changed their iOS app to no longer do in-app signups. So if you're new new to Netflix or if you stopped your Netflix and are coming back, if you start in an Apple app, iOS, iPad, or uh, – I guess Apple TV. I don't know if they've updated the Apple TV, but you can't create a new Netflix account. You used to be able to until like a week or two ago. You you know you could just sign in and use an in-app purchase, and they charge the same price. I think you know whatever ten bucks a month, um, except that for people who signed up in the apps, it ten you know thirty percent of that went to Apple every month, and seventy percent went to Netflix. Whereas if you signed up in your web browser with a credit card. You'd pay you the user would still pay ten bucks a month, and all of the money would go to Netflix minus you know Visa or Amex is two to three percent. Um, and so Netflix has made the obvious strategic change to go all in on that. But it is I, I'm with you. I, I I don't care if Apple takes thinks that the third you know and now they're for for subscriptions. Apple I don't know a year or two ago announced that it, once a subscription is a year old that. 70 30 split changes to 85 15. So somebody who, you know, signs up for HBO now in the app, uh, you know, 70 30 split for a year. And then after that, it's 85 15. Uh, if Apple thinks those numbers are good, that's fine. I think it's their prerogative. The part that I find objectionable, and it, it, to borrow your description, both morally and perhaps legally, but certainly morally, is the refusal to allow the app tell you what's going on. Like one of the rules 
of, of complying with Apple's App Store guidelines is that if you're not going to do in-app purchases and you have to sign up outside to to get them, the, one of the rules is you can't tell the user the rules <laughs> that you you know you have to go to the Amazon to Amazon.com to buy the Kindle book or you have to go to the Comicsology website to buy the comic book or you have to go to uh, you know Netflix.com to sign up for Netflix. And it, and and it, it, it when you really look at it, you look at the new Netflix. Like I signed out, or signed in on a on an older iPad that I didn't use anymore. Um, it is it's ridiculous that they don't tell you. Like and so I I really tried to put myself in the mindset of like let's say an old somebody who you know it's hard to imagine not having Netflix, but somebody who's like all right, I've heard enough about this Netflix. I want to watch this Bird Box thing everybody's talking about. I'd or sign up and you go to your iPad. It 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 really looks like a bug almost that you can't, that the only option is sign in, right? If you, you've, you've just downloaded this app for the first time, everybody you've heard about Netflix and you know, most things you do on your iPad, you, you, you know, you do everything on the iPad and with Netflix now you don't, but they, they have a button up in the corner help, which, which lets you make a phone call to Netflix. And I, I called it, which I'm glad I did. Uh, and if you ask them on the phone, they can tell you, they will tell you, oh, you need to go, you, you need to go to your web browser and go to netflix.com and you can sign up there. Uh, Which but the, the, the challenge then is even that, like, it's ridiculous, but that can a startup or can a new small company have like a call center? Uh, no. The, the, and not only that, but the, the insistence that you have to use the in-app purchase again, even if the percentages were much lower, the level of burden and complexity that puts on a new app because now you have to support Apple and you also have to support uh, something for the web and you have to support something different. Like you can't just have like one one payment system. Like you you're you're forced into supporting multiple ones as if the the world were you know were only iOS, but that's that's not the case. Yeah, I, I really think that Apple should be able to, to whatever they decide the split should be 70, 30, 80, 50, 85, 15, whatever they decide it should be, it should be able to compete on its own and that developers should choose. Well, that's, it's so convenient and so easy for the user to sign up right there in the app and just, you know, put their thumb on the touch ID button or use face ID and confirm. And now they're subscribed. Uh, it's so much, you know, I'm going to get so many more signups because of this. I'll, I'll agree to this 85, 15 or 70, 30, whatever. Um, that's their choice. Right. And if those numbers are too high, if 70, 30 is too much, you know, then it would naturally come down and they would adjust it. You know, like there, there is no market effect at work if, if they can unilaterally disallow developers from even choosing it while explaining to users how to go about it. Yeah. And they could, and they would still be very successful. I mean, take like in-app, take games, for example, like the, you, you don't, if you're a game developer and you're getting someone to buy a bunch of virtual coins or whatever it might be, you, you probably don't want to kick them out to a web browser because you're breaking the spell. You're getting out of it. And it's, you're you're like, do I really want to spend (laughs) this money? Right. You want the convenience and the speed of that transaction. It's a huge benefit. And Apple, you know, I'm not saying that Apple has to open up their in-app purchases to other payment processor. Like they innovated that. They built that. By all means, 
you should be able to you should be able to compete on those grounds. I have no objection to that. And frankly, there's a huge benefit uh, to being tied in with Apple. The number one thing of the number thing that drives churn for Shatekri, for example, is credit cards expiring. Like that, and people they expire and they don't notice for a while, and they maybe they forget to sign up, whatever it might be. Well, guess what? Guess which credit card is the first credit card to get changed if your card expires or if your card gets stolen. You go and you change your iTunes card right away because you're more likely to realize it's expired right. fast, right? So that's a huge benefit for a developer to be to have someone else basically policing the remembered update your credit card problem. Because that, that's by far one of the biggest drivers of churn for anyone that, that relies on credit cards. So like there's real benefits to going with Apple and where I think they could absolutely charge a premium and, and rightly so. This idea though that Apple deserves 30% of a Kindle book, which by the way would never happen in books because you're paying like there are I've I heard a lot from uh, people running ebook stores or ebook things that were not Amazon that this is devastating for them because they're paying out 80% of 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 a, of a book price. Like they right. it's literally impossible for them to use in-app purchases because they'd be eating 10% on every purchase. And right. what did Apple have to do with the publishing of that book? What did they have to do with with, with anything? All they did was make a device with a screen that is integral to to daily life and to think that entitles them to to book revenue or to music revenue or to whatever revenue might be, I think is, is preposterous. Yeah. And it's hostile to users. I I really do think so because it leaves when, when the developer like Netflix chooses not to, to participate or all of Amazon's properties, you know, that have consumable content or subscription content, it is confusing. It is really, really confusing. And I, that, that is the antithesis of the Apple experience to be, you know, to leave users in a confused state. It really does not look like, and, and, you know, the fact that you can't link or have a button that jumps you over to Safari to do it. I, I mean, I, I really do think that should, that should be allowed. And I don't even think it, I don't even think there should be a question about it, but the fact that, all right, even if you say you can't have a link, but you can't even tell them, like you can't even say, go to netflix.com and not have it be, not even have it be a link, but that's just, it, again, that's absurd, but it's even more absurd to say that you can't even tell them that that's what you have to do. Yeah, and I just think there's no defense for Apple here. I mean, the the def- and believe me, I've heard I've heard all the objections from 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 the Apple supporters that like, well, it would be better for the user if everything was in that purchase. And it's like, well, get, like we're not in that world. One and right. two, again, on what it's to understate, I think, the importance and of a phone. Right, the phones are. We live – look at how the world is transformed by this device. That's the reason why Apple makes so much money on the devices because they're so integral and important. And by definition, if they're so integral and important, they are essential to to the economy. They're essential to innovation. They're essential to new things coming forward. And it, it's, it's a societally – I think it's problematic that, that one company can uh, basically – Again, rent seek on an entire new world of digital content, and, and let me be clear: I'm super biased on this because I am in the digital content business, right? Uh, and you know, I I don't have an app, uh, and if I had an app, I would be forced to you know deal with this conundrum. So I, I'm certainly biased, but I'm also a huge believer in the potential of there being all kinds of new businesses, all kinds of new opportunities to do things online, to do things that weren't possible previously, and I don't see 
in any respect in which these sort of rules and limitations are making that future more likely to happen. They're making it less likely to happen. Yeah, and it gets back to the services narrative where Apple's drive to increase the revenue it makes from the App Store is in some ways at odds with the user experience. I mean, and you know, one of the ways it would be better if everything was an in-app purchase is the fact that uh, Apple has, in my opinion, a very good interface for seeing, hey, what subscriptions am I paying for through iTunes? And then you can see them and you can unsubscribe from them right there and there's nothing – the company can do about it. You know, that's, that's the way it is. So from a user experience perspective, it'd be great if more subscriptions went like that because they're in one central place where you can see them all get a better sense of like what you're spending per month overall on these subscription stuff. Uh, and you can unsubscribe easily. I mean, I always bring it up cause to me it's, it's like the best, it, the most amazing counterexample. Like if, if you want to unsubscribe from the New York times, you have to call them on the phone. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it's so and infuriating. It takes, and the other thing is that irritates me so much about the, the, is that when they won't tell you the price, they're like, it's $1 for eight weeks. It's like, well, how much is it after it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's ridiculous, Awful. right? Like Apple's rules make it, yeah, the Apple, Apple a makes it easy to unsubscribe. And they also, you know, make it impossible to obfuscate what you'll be paying. On, a, on on what basis? Uh, it's all great, but in a user's interest, it would therefore be in in Apple. It would it would therefore it would be better for the users than if Apple priced its cut for it, these in app subscriptions such that companies like Netflix and Amazon and booksellers could agree to them. Well, that's why. Well, that's also why that's a vector Apple can compete on, right? Like if if people asking for digital subscriptions are being scammy about it, then what's the solution is a market-based solution where consumers decide not to subscribe to them and, right. and or, or they are forced to offer an Apple, uh, an in-app purchase solution that that's a consumer can say, look, I'm not going to subscribe to you unless you offer in-app purchases. Cause I trust Apple to handle this better than you. Like that's, that's the mechanism to, for Apple to compete on by we're better and more trustworthy and consumers th- think, you know, trust us. It's not to decree by fiat that this is the way it's going to be and we're going to justify it. But it's not that what you're saying is not true, but that's a that's a reason to compete or a way to right. compete. It's not a justification for basically taking 30% because we can, which is, you know, the re- the reality now. All right. Yeah, right. There's there's no market pressure really on Apple to to adjust or lower its price. I mean, and you know they have in some sense with the thing I mentioned before, where where year old year plus old subscriptions are eighty five fifteen instead of seventy thirty. But for the most part, the rate has cha- stayed unchanged since the App Store opened up, and that's a little ridiculous because the difference in convenience between paying in app in 2008 versus now and 10 years later, it, it, it's not as big a difference, right? There, it was a lot more convenient back then compared to paying manually than it is now. And again, you know, in, a, in a web view or whatever. Yeah. Well, but not just that, but you know, there will always be advantages to it. And, but it's also the, yes, net people will say the market pressure is Netflix taking it out. Right. But the problem is that the only companies that can do that, that can exert that pressure, are other very large 
in powerful companies that are very well known. And by the way, okay. Netflix had a favorable rate for a lot longer than Apple doing that. Like that was more Apple giving the Netflix rate to everyone else because Netflix right. previously threatened to leave the store, right? The, the, but here's the problem. You, you, that's not market pressure. That's big company fighting. If you're yeah. a little guy, you don't get to exert that sort of pressure on Apple. Apple doesn't give – doesn't care if you're not in yeah, the app you don't store. Get a, you don't get a meeting with Eddie Q. Right. And, what, and <laughs> Apple, this is, this is why it bothers me. Just I think it's bad for society because it's the little guys that are getting hurt here. It's, 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 it's the gal that doesn't, that doesn't even create an app. It doesn't even create a service because th- that it, it's too – it's too, it's too much or it's too much of a hassle. Again, this idea that the other, the other thing that people don't consider is because you have to use Apple's in-app purchases, that means you have to build at least two payment systems for, an, for a new app or service because you need one for mm-hmm. Android and, and the web. You can use the same one for Android and the web because Google allows it, but you still have to have a different one for Apple. And now you have, to, you have two different revenue streams. You have to figure out how to mix them together. You have to, your bookkeeping is way more complicated. It is increasing the the entry for for innovation and for creating something new and i that that's a bad thing and apple will go on and on about all these new jobs they create and the new things they create the app store and that's all that's all true i'm not denying any of that but now we're no longer in like the world where the iphone's coming along we're the world where the iphone exists where smartphones exist and they are inescapable you can't build a business and not be on a phone like it, it is the most important computer pl- computing platform there's ever been and for digital platforms it's the only platform that matters and that makes it even more important that there not be anti-competitive policies like this given its importance to kind of society broadly yeah and it's you know like if you buy i mean people don't buy apps anymore i mean i know it's all going subscription but um you know but you buy an app and Apple gets their cut one time. And then if you keep using the app, you keep using the app or not. But the idea, you know, like, and one of the things that makes Netflix is pulling out of this remarkable is that Netflix is the top grossing app in the store. Um, that, you know, it, it obviously, obviously enough people were signing up, you know, did their signups through the app store that it, it's the top grossing app in the store. I mean, it, I guess it's not surprising if you think that Apple was making 15% off of all these Netflix subscribers and Netflix, of course, is super popular that there'd be enough of them that it would make Netflix the top grossing app in the store. But I, it's really hard to argue that Apple deserves 15% of those, those numbers for forever, forever in perpetuity for years to come. And obviously it will be years to come because Netflix isn't going anywhere. And, you know, part of the whole Netflix pulling out is it's just new, new subscribers. They haven't like canceled the subscriptions of everybody who signed up in iOS. So Netflix may well remain the top grossing app in the store for years to come, Yep. (laughs) even though they no longer allow people to sign up. Yep. Like that's kind of crazy. Like the fact that Netflix, you know, a year from now might still be, and and I wouldn't bet against it, might still be the top grossing app in the app store because all of, you know, I don't think people cancel their Netflix very frequently. I think there's enough, you know, so I I think it'll keep going. It, It just shows how it's ridiculous to argue that Apple, quote, deserves that money when Netflix can stop taking it and just on the basis of years old signups still be paying all that money. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's, 
it's concerning because the, the this isn't going to change because uh, we just went through the entire thing where hardware revenue is is in a hard place, which means they the services narrative is super important. And you saw that in Cook's letter. He really emphasized the services aspect and emphasized the fact the install base is growing. And the, as I noted a, you know, a little bit ago, the, the, the install base growing, the reason that matters is because it means more services revenue, and which means Apple's not going to back down here. And that is understandable strategically. It makes it it worries me tremendously as an observer of the company. Like yeah. if this is how you're going to make money is by again, it's it's rent seeking by by taking money from activities that you had nothing to do with uh, just because you can. That is a I, I, I worry that can have a corrosive effect on, on well on, and. It- and the flip side of it, and I wanted to make this point before we stopped, um, and I'm glad I, I thought of it, but the flip side of it is on the other side, I, I'm in agreement with you that, for example, in-app purchasing in a game to buy you know, boxes of coins or whatever the hell you buy, I do think that Apple, you know, I, I think it makes sense that even if it were only an option, that the game developers would still use Apple's system and still pay Apple's 30% because of the, you know, like you said, you, if you leave and go to Safari, all of a sudden it's a moment to think, wait, do I really want to spend 10 bucks on this? Or, you know, why don't I just stay in Safari and see what the hell's going on in uh, Daring Fireball? Um, <laughs> but but that means that Apple is in a position where they benefit tremendously from this whole uh, uh, in-app purchasing of games and, consu- you know, consumables. You know, like you what, you, what do you call it? Pay, pay to win, right? Yep. Uh, that you have to pay to win the game or to keep going, you know, whether you're, you know, it, it I don't think that's a good, I, I, I think that's a very morally questionable uh, business model. And Apple's in a position of benefiting uh, quite a bit on this on, on, and particularly in the area where they're, they're directing analysts to look like, look at our services, look at our services. That's the one that they're telling everybody to look at. And they services to some degree benefits, from the unhealthy world of pay to win games, you know? So on the one hand, they're taking money from like Netflix uh, that they, you know, arguably don't deserve. And then where they do deserve it, it's, it's not a very, it's questionably immoral. Yeah. Well, and then, and then the, I think the other piece is stuff like, uh, like iCloud, iCloud storage being five gigabytes, right? Uh, that's, yeah. that's a terrible user experience. And you see Google leveraging that against them, right? They run ads for Google yep. Photos that has the pop up of you're out of, you're out of storage, right? And, and, and but, right. The, you know, getting, getting that, getting that every month is, 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 uh, hard, apparently hard to give up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's it's funny because I never saw that dialogue because I'm an idiot and I buy the biggest iPhone every time. And so I've got plenty of space on all my iPhones. But once they started showing it and, you know, and it's it is definitely an iOS dialogue. Uh, it makes me realize that it, it surely is a common experience for uh, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and all this stuff is uh, it, it, Making it hard for people to, I, th- I think, it, I think this is a policy that kills innovation. 
I think to the extent that it, 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 you know big companies go outside, it, to your point, it makes the user experience ridiculous and and and, and confusing. It, uh, it it hurts the performance as far as the storage thing goes. You know that you don't have everything backed up. You don't have everything restored. I mean, remember Apple was all about backup. They did Time Machine. Like, wouldn't it be a shame if your computer crashed and you lost all your photos? Right. Well, wouldn't it be a shame if you lost your phone and you lost your photos because you didn't uh, you didn't pay for enough storage or whatever it might be? I mean, the the the. W- what happened to the user? What happened to this? You go with Apple and everything's taken care of. Well, you go with Apple and everything's taken care of if you pay a lot extra or some amount extra per month. And oh, by the way, there's things that aren't going to happen. You're not going to get because we made, you know, we made entry too difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder too, how much that even plays into, uh, backfiring even on iPhone sales, like how many people are reluctant people who let's say are on the free tier. So they don't have their whole photo library backed up. Um, and they know that they've got tons of photos and videos that they care about on the phone that aren't backed up anywhere. And yeah, I know you can go buy a new iPhone and go to the genius bar. And if you explain it to them and you know, that you know, I don't, you know, I don't have iCloud backups cause they don't fit, um, uh, that they'll, they'll do the backup on a Mac right there at the bar for you and help you. But I don't know if people know that that's even possible. Um, like how many people just vaguely in the back of their mind are like, I don't want to get a new phone because I don't feel like, I don't know, I, I'm worried that I might lose my photos. Yeah. I mean, it has to be good. some number of people. And then therefore it's affecting the, the the upgrade cycle. I mean, I honestly don't think that that's, I don't think I'm jumping through contortions to imagine that there are people like that. I, it, it, as, a, as somebody who cares about digital data and knows how important backups are, it terrifies me how many people's iPhones aren't backed up. Yeah, it, and, it, and just to be it, clear, because people are gonna people are gonna bring this up. Like, photo stream does not count against your your data, but you're limited on the number of photos that are in the photo stream. Like, if you want all your photos backed up, like that that is gonna count. That is gonna count against your data. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and it's otherwise tricky, or people don't know how to move everything that you've got on your old phone to your new phone. You know, and you know the fact that people lose phones, people destroy phones. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of you know go on and on and on about the importance of backups, but it's, it's tragic that more iPhone users don't have their phones backed up in iCloud, which is the easiest and old. And in my opinion, for the typical user, by far the most reliable way to back up your phone, because it's not up to you to, to make sure your iTunes is working and your computer's in good working order. It's, you know, it's all on, on Apple's part. Yeah. And and you don't have to do anything on a regular basis. And I, I don't know to the extent to which um, – I mean you, there's lots of talk about Silicon Valley companies in general and being large and should there be antitrust and should companies be broken up, et cetera, et cetera. And I, 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 you know, if, to my mind, the clearest single bit of anti-competitive behavior in the Valley is Apple and it's not close. I mean can you imagine back in the day if Microsoft had insisted on taking 30% of every, of every app on Windows? I mean this is – Far more egregious than than anything that Microsoft tried to pull off, and, and you know, and people look point to other examples. Like, what about Google? Well, Google, you can kick out to a web page. Uh, what about Steam? Steam takes thirty percent. Well, you can install games uh, outside of Steam. There are com- com- competitors to Steam. Like that's the equivalent of you of having multiple app stores, right? You, and, right. And, and like, there's really nothing like this in tech that is just so egregious. Like it, re- it, it, it's really it, when you back up and think about it, and you realize that the digital goods market is different than the smartphone market. This is quite blatantly leveraging their position in the smartphone market into taking uh, money out of, the, out of the digital goods market. And it's, it's 
I don't know. It it it, it, it bothers me, it, it, and I think it hurts innovation just as much as. You know, Facebook and Google being large and dominant, taking all the advertising money, hurts innovation. Like it, it's it's not good for it's not good for anyone. The, the general consumer tech right now is is so stagnant in my mind, in large part because of how dominant these companies are and these sorts of policies. Yeah, that's a good closing thought. Uh, I appreciate it. I had, this is a great episode. Uh, we mentioned it at the outset, but anybody who who forgot because it was. <laughs> quite a bit ago uh your podcast exponent uh yes strategy uh where my writing one article is one article is free a week and then there's four pay and then uh exponent uh my my, my podcast is back it was gone i need just needed a, need a little bit of a break but but it is back so you can check that out as well uh and that's at exponent.fm. You've been on a roll on Stratechery. Uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, you've been good ever since it started. But I, I feel like the last couple of uh, months have been really good. A uh, couple of really good pieces, including your take on the Apple, uh, which we've kind of rehashed here. But uh, the Apple earnings thing. And, and your year in review is a good one, too. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Was that a free one? That's the one thing. I Sometimes I get confused as what was a pay, what I got as a paid uh, daily update and what was a column. Yeah, the well, year I mean, in review was a was a column, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was free. Yeah, I mean, like everything's a trade off, right? And that's one of the trade offs that comes from having some stuff be free and some stuff not. Is people almost become hesitant to promote it because they're worried about promoting the wrong thing. Uh, yeah. But you know, that's that's the reality of business. You you, you got to make trade offs. So, but yes, that is free. You, you can uh, if you go on the page, you have the Apple piece, and then the one before it is the year in review, which is uh, all the uh, pretty good overview of everything I wrote in the in the last year. What was the most popular? Uh, which ones I thought were were particularly meaningful, and then I believe the article before that is, or a couple ones before that is the is the Apple, um, the Apple antitrust one. Yeah, we didn't even get into the damn MacBook keyboards. <laughs> oh, dude, what Dieter? Ba- I, I was during one of your commercial breaks. Uh, Dieter Bod uh, posted from the Verge posted one of his coworkers at CES with a portable Bluetooth keyboard sitting on top of her MacBook because her spacebar stopped working. Um, I mean, it, 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 I, I feel this. Like, I travel, and I am constantly low-key nervous about my computer suddenly not working. I mean, that it's ridiculous that that is even would even cross my mind of being something. And frankly, it makes me want to buy. It. No, I. If my if my computer ever suddenly stopped working, I would probably go buy a Windows computer. I'm dead serious. Like, uh, I don't care how much I'm used to Mac OS, and I know you were complaining about it on Daring Fireball this week, so I don't want to open that that can of words about Windows. But literally having your your keyboard suddenly stop working is ridiculous, and it, it's, you, it's just absurd. Wouldn't you be more likely to get a Chromebook? Uh, no, I mean, uh, so I actually haven't used Chromebooks in a while. I love Chromebooks. I think they're a great experience. The Pixel book, I, I, I wrote a lot of it on, on Pixel. The, the big problem I had was the, uh, the lack of like a, a clipboard history. It, like it just wasn't yeah. possible. I'm not, that might be possible on Chromebooks now. I'm not sure, but literally yeah. that was the number one reason why, uh, I, I couldn't keep using, I couldn't keep using the Chromebooks, but I do like Chromebooks. Um, that's one of the top reasons I can't – whenever I try using an iPad for an extended period of time, the lack of a clipboard history is, is such a deal breaker. For those of you who don't know, it's, if you want to take away a tip, if we do a tips and tricks segment, find yourself a clipboard history app for the Mac and try it. And there's so many. Like uh, Keyboard Maestro has one. I, I've got like three apps running at all times that offer it as a feature. I have to choose which one. Uh, Launch Bar has one. I'll bet Alfred hey, has one. 
PaySpot is actually the one I use because it's dedicated clipboard manager. And the basic idea is everything you, you can set it to, you know, say, remember my last hundred copies. And so the last hundred things you've copied are all remembered. And then there's a system-wide keyboard shortcut that you can invoke to show you a list of them and search them. Uh, and it is, once you get used to it, it is, it, it, it feels like going to the 1800s to go back to once you copy something, the previous thing you had copied is gone. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it is a game changer. And for me and you who write things and we put a lot of links in like going to Safari and going copy, copy, copy for three URLs and then going back to the writing environment and paste, paste, paste to get the three things. Uh, the idea that you'd have to go back and forth between the two apps is crazy. And I know there's some utilities, the iPad that kind of let you, but it's not as automatic. Like the thing about the Mac one is that it's just automatic. Every time you hit command C, it's in your clipboard history. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, and I, I think I remember looking at Chrome OS. I think there, it might be possible now, but it's not the like just using keyboard shortcuts super yeah. fast. Everything's super automatic. Um, that's, yeah, no, that, 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 that's exactly right. No, I, I would, I would get, no, I, I would get a, um, my wife got a, uh, for various reasons, got a, a surface laptop. Um, it's nice. It, I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the hardware is beautiful. Uh, yeah. the, uh, um, is that the one, is it the one that's all metal? It's not the one with the fake leather, right? No, it does have the fake leather, which I thought, oh, it which, does have the fake leather. which, which actually in, in use is not nearly as objectionable as I thought it was. Hmm. And, uh, she has the blue one. So it's like this, it's this blue metallic, like when, when it's closed, it is gorgeous. Like it's a really good looking machine. I, I was really impressed by it. Um, you know, obviously it's still windows whatnot, but the keyboard works great. The trackpad is, is Mac quality. Like that was always yeah. a big objection I had to all windows laptops. The trackpad seemed to always be terrible. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a nice machine. Well, bizarre for, for whatever bizarre reason of all the things that Microsoft was always been good at is they've always been good at input devices. They're, they're, they got into the business selling mice and keyboards long ago, and it seemed so crazy at the time. Like, why the hell is Microsoft making mice and keyboards? Their mice were always excellent. Yep. Excellent. Their I used Microsoft well. mouse yeah. for a while. And, they, what, and their keyboards. And that was the thing. The keyboards with, have, even when they did never the to surface, my liking, but they were very good. Even when they did the Surface uh, from day one, the, the trackpad was always good because that always yeah. drove me up the wall with Windows laptops is the trackpad was always bad. And then Microsoft, yeah. even V1, uh, the trackpad was great. So uh, I, apparently, I don't know if people are just cheaping out or what. I mean, the, the Microsoft uh, computers are expensive. Like they are, they're not making any bones about it. Like they are very much uh, Apple Apple prices. And I think probably with the trackpad, it was a matter of you get what you pay for. And uh, yeah. it has a really good trackpad. And and by the way, having touch is really nice. Uh, you know, I think the things that the mistake people make about about touch is. No one's using touch all the time, but it's like every now and then it's just easier to touch something than to than to than to click on it, and it's not like an all or nothing sort of thing. And um, yeah, you know, my wife's very happy with it. Hmm. Uh, my Windows observation: my son got a gaming PC. For those of you who didn't pay attention, and and uh, helped him set it up over Christmas. Uh, so I haven't seen Windows in like fifteen years. Uh, uh, and I, I mean, I mean, I've seen it, but I've never actually like tried to do anything like just connect a computer to Wi-Fi or something like I did. Uh, and it's horrendous. It is, <laughs> to my opinion, worse than ever because it's like whatever Windows 10 does is actually just a veneer over Windows 7 and Windows 7 is just a veneer. And you, if you poke around and keep hitting advanced settings enough, you eventually get 
the all the stuff from Windows XP. It's it's all still there. Yep. No, it's this like is, a, this has always been Windows uh, blessing and curse, right? Like the right. It, right. W- it will still run everything that has ever been written because of that. But you right. like there is a definite trade off involved. And yeah, the uh, it, it, no. It, so my observation was that I would rather retire from using computers. <laughs> Well, the, than the, use a Windows. the other thing that I really dislike about Windows is they're much better about switching languages than they used to be, but you have to log out and log back in. Whereas with a Mac, you can just switch – when you – in a Mac, if you switch the language, the finder will always be in the language that it booted up into. But if you quit an app and restart the app, it will, it will be in the new language. And so my wife, her computer's in Chinese. And so I was trying to do settings. And you're right. The, like the settings, the settings area is a bit of a disaster as is. And then once you start digging deeper, it gets worse. So you ha- I have to have it in English to get it set up. Like I'm not going to figure it out. And then, then I have to log out and, the, and log back in. Oh, it's, it's, it's a big pain. Oh, and the start menu, my God, <laughs> it's like an, an entire operating system in the start menu. Well, that, that's kind of like what it t- is. That's what, that's where windows eight ended up. It, 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 it is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, and my son has a, we got him a, a 4k display. Uh, so in theory it's, you know, quote unquote retina. But there's certain apps and windows are like effectively retina, uh, you know, like using four pixels to render one dot, you know, so you, everything looks fine. Other things, though, are like one to one. So it's just like like the tiniest text you could ever freaking imagine, yeah. like literally using one pixel on the display as a as a stroke of the letter. Yeah, it's too <laughs> it, bad. I mean, I wish, if you go back, I mean, I say this is someone that worked there during the Windows 8 era, so um, to whatever smallest sense of responsibility I have, I, I apologize. But Windows 7 was actually a really solid operating system. Like, if there were little things in the, its appearance that drove me up the wall, like they had this weird sort of like highlighting in the menu bar and stuff like that. But like, it generally worked, and it worked well, and it was predictable and sort of understandable. And, you know, I think... Windows, like the whole Metro UI, which took pictures really, really well, but I think from a usability standpoint was not great. Uh, it would be yeah. kind of nice if they could kind of rewind that. And if they had, because r- right now, yeah, that whole start menu is basically trying to cram that in there. And the reason why the settings are such a mess is because that's like that new UI and it didn't get translated everywhere. And uh, if, if Windows could just be Windows 7, but evolved since then, but that the same general aesthetic and design, which again, it's, I'm not saying it's a wonderful design or aesthetic and, you know, I'm not saying you should like it, but it was, it was predictable in a way that, uh, Windows 10 is much better than it, it, it used to be, but it's it's it's. I think they're in a definitely a worse place because of it. No, I don't know how unique I am. I mean, it's obviously my career is a privileged position where I can only use. I only have to use whatever devices I want to use. But uh, man, if anybody else out there has not used Windows in like 10, 15 years, you really should. <laughs> Should sit down and try it. Yeah, the it funny is. thing is, because I, mean, I worked at Microsoft, so I, I had a few years of using Windows. And honestly, once you were like mostly Windows Seven, and then uh, and once you're used, like if you're used to it, it's it really was fine. Like it, the the biggest problem I had with Windows, and this surprises people, was third party apps. Was actually the sort of like you know uh, the. the Mac apps and the functionality they provided and the the general overall design and quality of them was leagues higher than the sort of third-party Windows app, again, for like an individual. like yeah. when, yeah. That surprised me. Like, oh, Windows has a big app advantage, right? Well, that advantage is like line of business apps and like all these right. like customized things for a particular business that are not there because of their great user interface. They're there because they do a very sort of specific function. And um, – 
that, that, that was always the Mac's sort of big advantage. The actual like day-to-day experience of using Windows once you were used to it, uh, Windows 7, was, was honestly not that bad. It was, it was a lot better than I expected. <laughs> but but uh, the, I agree that – but the, then Windows 8 came along and it got a, it got a lot more complicated. Uh, that's a good postscript to the show. <laughs> anyway. Uh, people can read you on Twitter. Your regular Twitter account is at Ben Thompson. And then uh, anybody who actually is interested in your nightly musings and gloating lately on the Milwaukee Bucks can find your sports stuff nicely separated in the No Tech Ben uh, Twitter account. Yeah, I'm pretty, sure, lot, I'm know, pretty be- sure No Tech Ben hurts my business. but uh. <laughs> yeah, Well, No Tech Ben uh, hurts me because people come to me when I go off on sports on Twitter and they're like, can't you set up, <laughs> can't you set up a No Tech? Or a sports a sports account like Thompson did, and I I don't want to do that. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Hey, have a great day. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben. Uh, yep. Bye bye. <laughs>